Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. We got kind of a different episode for you today. Corey needed some time off, so we have a very special guest co-host. My friend Megan Bob filled in a couple of months ago now, and we got some really nice feedback from it, and I was excited to have them back as well. So Megan Bob is going to be filling in for Corey today, and I picked out a kind of different comic book for us to cover because of that. See, Megan Bob is a co-creator of a podcast I write on, Garden Plots with Skeletor, which is a gardening podcast hosted by Skeletor. And they are also a prolific creator of and proponent of fanfiction. So today we're going to take a look at a comic book that has supervillains as the protagonists, and in a way is also kind of a piece of fanfiction. As often happens when I talk with Megan Bob, our conversation goes a little bit long in this one. So I'm not going to do the normal, like, uh, nonsense word association ramble that I normally start the show off with. If you're really missing that and you need a fix, um, etymology's weird, bears are funny, and so are bees. Alright, that should do it. Now, without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Andrew Jefferson. Aqualad is the greatest titan of all time. His stories are unquestionably sublime. His strength is from his sea-strengthened muscles and bones, while his hair can be described as like that of a young Tom Jones. He can make both the girls and boys swoon, and has beaten every known type of goon. He was originally exiled from Atlantis, which can kinda sorta rhyme with synopsis. Synopsis? Thanks, Andrew! Teen Titan Spotlight Number 11 June 1987 the Brotherhood is Dead. Written by Randy and Jean-Marc Lafacier. Drotted by Joe Orlando. Inkted by Bruce Patterson. Letterded by John Costanza. Colorded by Joe Orlando. Edited by Barbara Kiesel. And Marv Wolfman is listed as the creative editor which I think just means they had to get creative to figure out a way to get his name into the credits. Teen Titan Roll Call! None of them! Not a single character who could by any stretch of the imagination be considered a member of the Titans is in this comic book, but Brotherhood of Evil Roll Call! The Brain! Monsieur Mala! Phobia! Warp! Previously in The Brotherhood of Evil. The Brotherhood of Evil was a supervillainous organization which had been giving superhero teams like Doom Patrol and the Teen Titans a not insignificant amount of guff for quite some time. Founded by a disembodied brain imaginatively named The Brain, who lives in a robotic pedestal and has a ridiculous French accent, and his partner, Monsieur Mala, a superintelligent mutant gorilla with a ridiculous French accent, hooray! The Brotherhood has at various times boasted such members as Phobia, a British lady in a green bodysuit with an arrow pointing at her crotch who makes people as scared, Plasmus, 
a walking tub of chemical goo with a ridiculous German accent, Hoongen, a Haitian-American practitioner of high-tech voodoo who dresses like a futuristic Vegas showgirl, and Warp, a teleporty man with an aggressively uncircumcised turtleneck and a ridiculous French accent. They also probably had some other members who I don't remember. Between intermittent hiatuses brought about by occasional bouts of being dead and inexplicably getting better, this assortment of international evil aficionados has made it their business to menace the globe for fun and profit. This particular tale takes place an indeterminate amount of comic book time ago and features a significantly stripped-down Brotherhood roster. The Brotherhood have just recruited Phobia, but have yet to recruit Warp. Gadzooks! Whose actions will force the Brotherhood into the uncomfortable role of protagonists? With three of the four main characters being French, will this issue be chock-a-block with ridiculous phonetically spelled out French accents? And seeing as the Brotherhood of Evil is short-staffed, will they be forced to team up with any other recognizable characters? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... A corrupt French spy, a psychic new wave bureaucrat, and an 11,000-year-old sorcerer. Sadly, no, they just speak French to each other and we see the translation. Which is reasonable, but disappointing. And yes, they certainly do. In Paris, France, a secret meeting is taking place at the Dome. The Dome is the headquarters for the Global Guardians, a sort of super-powered League of Nations made up of cultural stereotype heroes from around the world. The leader of the Guardians, an 11,000-year-old African sorcerer named Dr. Mist, is meeting with the Dome's director of operations, a stylish young woman named Belfigor, and André Chavard, the head of a French spy agency known as Department Gamma. The subject of this meeting is the Brotherhood of Evil. Belfagor is like, Hey Andre, you know how the Brotherhood of Evil is dead? Chavard is like, We. Oui. You know, because he's French. Belfagor is like, Well, funny story, they aren't. See, there's a dipshit named Captain Toulon who works in your agency. He used to occasionally hire the Brotherhood of Evil to do, well, evil for the French government. When you started running things, Toulon realized that that kind of shit wouldn't fly anymore, so he arranged for the Brotherhood to be murdered, only it turns out they were less murdered than Toulon thought they were. When he finds out they faked their own deaths and are probably seeking revenge on him, he's going to try to murder them again. Chavard is like, okay? I I'm sorry, I'm a little lost here. So should we stop him from killing the international terrorists who have the word evil right in their team name? Belfagor is like, no, we're going to tell Toulon that they're alive and follow him around, manipulating events from the shadows. Chavard is like, ah, spy shit, got it. Sorry, I wasn't sure if you were a superhero lady or a spy lady or a government lady, so it was tough to tell where you were going to come down on that. Belfagor is like, no, no, I get it. This is my first appearance and I haven't been fleshed out much, so it's a little unclear. Uh, Dr. Mist, is there anything you want to add, or are you just going to stand there ominously wearing a trench coat and fedora that only partially conceals your superhero outfit? Dr. Mist is like, no, I'm good just standing here ominously. The next day, in Saint-Tropez on the French Riviera, the Brain, Monsieur Mala, and Phobia 
meet with Warp at his swanky vacation home. The brain is like, Want to join the Brotherhood of Evil and help us do the crimes? Warp is like, No, I stole a bunch of stuff already, so now I'm just going to chill out and be rich. Phobia and Monsieur Mala don't love that answer and are kind of rude about it. Threats are made, but before things escalate any further, Captain Toulon, who had been watching from afar, sends in a bunch of guys who for some reason are wearing fancy spacesuits to attack the quartet of colorful criminals. Mala starts shooting the spacesuit guys with his ever-present machine gun, but the villains are clearly outnumbered. Resigning himself to throw in his lot with the Brotherhood after all, Warp reluctantly agrees to abandon his vacation home and teleport them all to safety. He starts to activate his powers, but as he does so, the lead spacesuit guy zaps him with some sort of magic gizmo that one of Belphegor's agents gave him. Instead of being teleported to a boat in the nearby harbor, as Warp had intended, the Brotherhood of Evil finds themselves transported to a strange, war-torn, post-apocalyptic landscape in the middle of a savage battle. At which point, this comic takes an abrupt pivot and essentially becomes a piece of alternate universe Tintin fanfiction. Yeah, that Tintin. Huh. Okay. The Brotherhood joins in the battle, apparently picking a side at random, and finds themselves fighting alongside a pleasant, young, muscly Belgian man with a distinctive point of red hair atop his head. He's all mad maxed out in post-apocalyptic gear and is riding a big white dog into battle. And just in case that was too subtle, the young man introduces himself as Tin. With the Brotherhood's aid, Tintin, cause come on, it's Tintin, and his army trounce their opponents. As they celebrate their victory, Tintin explains that he and his friends call themselves the Second Chance Army, and that this world, which I'm just gonna start calling Planet Belgium, is about to explode. Good to know. Mala asks Warp if he can teleport them home, but I guess he can only teleport places that he remembers how to get to, and the gizmo he got zapped with made him forget where the Earth is or something. The rest of the Brotherhood isn't thrilled about this. Tintin takes them to have a chat with his best friend, an old drunken sea captain. Hooray! The captain takes a swig from his flask and proceeds to fill his guest's metaphoric mugs to the brim with several gallons of alternate universe Tintin exposition. It turns out that back when he was a younger drunken sea captain, he and his teenage Belgian buddy Tin used to have a bunch of adventures with their friend, the Professor. In 1952, they helped Belgium spearhead the first expedition to the moon. When they got back, the USSR kidnapped the professor, but they rescued him. Then they went to Tibet and Australia and got mixed up in a revolution in South America. I'm pretty sure most of this stuff is references to Tintin books that I would probably recognize if when I was a kid I hadn't considered Tintin the graphic novel equivalent of carob chips, which was probably unfair of me. Anyway, soon after their trip to South America, the whole world went higgledy-piggledy, and a nuclear war broke out. Radiation created a bunch of mutants, but it also turned Tintin's little white dog into a big white dog that he can ride around on, so I guess it wasn't all bad. On the other hand, planet Belgium is on the verge of being consumed by atomic fires, so it is pretty bad. 
some jerkhole named Minos kidnapped the professor and made him build a giant rocket ship that Minos and all his evil buddies can use to escape the planet before it blows up. So tomorrow, Tintin and his Second Chance army are going to invade Minos' stronghold, rescue the professor, and claim the rocket for themselves so that they're the ones who escape this doomed planet. Oh, so saving the world is off the table? I guess I was somehow expecting Tintin's goals to be a little more altruistic, but it seems like they have pretty much the same plan that the bad guys do. I mean, the bad guys who aren't on their side. Speaking of bad guys, the Brotherhood of Evil decides to help Tin and the Captain. The Brain thinks that if he can get his hands on some of the Professor's high-tech doodads, he and Phobia might be able to poke around in Warp's brain a little and jog his memory so that he can take them back to their world. Failing that, if they can't get home, having seats on the last rocket out of town seems like a decent backup plan. The next day, the Brotherhood and the Second Chance Army storm Minos' fortress. With the aid of his off-world allies, Tintin and his forces manage to overpower the stronghold's defenses and fight their way to the enemy's inner sanctum. Tin makes a line for Minos, a diminutive Italian-American film director slash master criminal who wears an eye patch and dresses like a cowboy going to prom. Tin is just about to wallop the monocular madman, but Minos counterattacks with a weapon even more dangerous than the riding crop he is carrying around for no particular reason. An unpleasant truth. Oh no! Minos informs his pointy-haired nemesis that in a sense, it is all his fault that planet Belgium is about to explode. The fact that Tin and his pals landed on the moon in 1952, nearly two decades earlier than would have been possible without their efforts, set in motion a chain of events which made the destruction of the planet in a nuclear war inevitable. Tin is dazed by this accusation, and Minos uses his opponent's lapse in concentration to make a leap for the self-destruct button on his computer's console, ranting that if he can't escape annihilation, he will blow up the rocket and make sure that no one else can either. Fortunately, before Minos can reach the button, Monsieur Mala bursts into the room and uses his machine gun to riddle the nefarious filmmaker turned would-be world blower upper with bullet holes. Hooray! While Tintin was watching his archenemy get murdered by a talking gorilla, the drunken sea captain managed to locate their abducted ally, the Professor. He brings him into the control room to see Tin, and the three reunited chums share an enthusiastic embrace. Honestly, maybe a little too enthusiastic on Tin's part. After extricating himself from his young friend's arms, the professor hastens to assist the brain in hooking Warp up to a state-of-the-art memory restoration doohickey that he has lying around his lab. Before beginning the complicated memory-jogging process, Brain is like, Probably should have mentioned this before, but there is a pretty good chance this won't work and will fry your noodle instead. Uh, uh, uh. Warp is like, eh, either way. The professor and the brain hook up some jumper cables to Warp's head, then do some old-school watch-on-a-chain-style hypnosis shenanigans on him. Then Phobia uses her fear-generating powers on him, which I guess are psychic-adjacent enough to help him retrieve a memory if you sort of squint a little. The upside is the experiment's a success. 
Warp sits bolt upright on the table and suddenly remembers how to teleport them home. The drunken sea captain invites the Brotherhood to join them on their rocket, but the Brotherhood is like, nah, we really wouldn't get along with good guys long term. Thanks, though. Suddenly, Tintin starts freaking out that he might screw up the timeline on whatever new planet they land on and doom it to some sort of fiery Armageddon as well. He insists that his companions board the escape ship without him. So, Monsieur Mala bops him on the noggin and knocks him out. Hooray! The murderous ape tells the captain and the professor to load Tintin onto the rocket, and when he wakes up, tell him not to be such a dumbass. The odds are against him blowing up two planets. In the course of the next few seconds, the Brotherhood teleports back to Earth, Tintin's rocket blasts off, and Planet Belgium explodes. The next day, back on the DC Universe's Earth, the Brotherhood shows up at Captain Toulon's house and murders the fuck out of him. Oh, right, because they're bad guys. Apparently, Belphegor and Dr. Mist have been using their respective psychic and mystical powers to monitor the Brotherhood's adventures on Planet Belgium. As they attend Captain Toulon's funeral a few days later, they discuss the fact that they're both stoked that Tintin and his buddies managed to escape. Dr. Mist was hoping something like this would happen when he and Belphegor sent the Brotherhood there. Wait, they were? He also mentions that he's glad that Toulon isn't around to fuck things up anymore. Apparently his death had been part of the plan as well. Harsh. Belphegor asks why he didn't send the Global Guardians to help Tintin, and Dr. Mist is like, well, I was sort of hoping the Brotherhood of Evil would die too. Okay, A, harsh, and two, if the Brotherhood had died in the Tintiniverse, who would have killed Captain Toulon? Oh well, maybe he had a backup plan that involved a steampunk Hercule Poirot or some dystopian warlord Smurfs or something. The end. Ooh, maybe a cyberpunk Asterix? I would totally read that. And my good-for-many-things brother Cory accidentally drank too much cold brew coffee and started vibrating at a frequency that put him out of phase with our dimension. This has happened before. In fact, it happens to Portlanders a fair percentage of the time. I'm assuming he's just trying to track down some quaaludes or chugging half and half until he starts feeling logy enough to return to our dimension. But in the meantime, we are lucky enough to be joined by my good for ever so many things friend, Megan Bob. Megan Bob, thanks for joining us. Is it safe for me to come out from under the couch now? I wish you would. Oh, okay. I mean, I have just been living under this couch ever since the last time we recorded. Oh, geez. Fortunately, I'm a very messy eater, so there should be plenty <laughs> down there for you to snack on. I, I wish I had known, but, uh... I mean, I stole a sausage that Finley didn't want. He was like, no, I don't want this. Fuck you and this sausage you rode in on. And I was like, I'll take that, buddy. Excellent. Well, I'm glad it worked out. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. It's the start of the semester. There's a storm that just passed recently, so it's feeling slightly autumnal. Oh, no! I'm talking about the weather! Hob, do you think I'm secretly Corey? I've never been in the same room as Corey. Am I Corey? It's really difficult for me to tell. I don't think you are, but it is possible that as he is phasing back into our dimension, you are inhabiting the same space, so it's tough to tell. 
Talking about the weather when I ask how you're doing is a pretty big clue, though. Oh, no. I mean, not that it would be bad to be Corey. It's just like I would have liked to have known that I was Corey before now. Well, and I like to think that I have two friends. (laughs) (laughs) I really do want to thank you for sending the comic book to me because I got to touch real paper pages from the past and see what colors fade into and like how thick the paper is and all this and see the ads, the whole schmear. It's a different kind of experience, I feel like. I don't mind reading stuff digitally, but it reminds me of like, I don't know, picking up like a an album and like holding it in your hands. It's it's different, you know? Yeah, I mean, I come from the age of CDs, and so I, I have a weird feeling about CDs and cassettes that I think is stupid to have because albums are clearly cooler and so much more fun to touch. Although obviously a much larger surface area to fuck up. But I still go like, a cassette tape. Ooh, paper liner notes. Cassette tapes do hold a special place in my heart as well. That and CDs are largely what I grew up listening to. But, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, when you move to Portland, they issue you cold brew and a record player. So I've got that. But both of those are good things. That's the thing is that like Portland is sure it's the thing it is. And that's not totally great, but they're not wrong about some stuff. Yeah, in recent years, it has turned more and more into, I don't know, a Portland-themed section of Whole Foods. But it's still a nice place. Yeah, I've been to parts of Ireland that were very like, oh, this is Ireland as filtered through, like, the lens of the Disney Corporation. Even though it is not, but it certainly has moments of that. And I'm like, oh, welp, this is fine. Yeah, about 15 years ago, Portland very much turned into the Epcot Center version of Portland Land. Aww. But, you know, you get used to the big foam-headed mascots after a little while. (laughs) And, I mean, if somebody wanted to give me, like, a smoked salmon donut, I'm fucking gonna take it. Look. I am not too proud to eat a weird fusion cuisine that shouldn't exist. Okay, smoked salmon donut. You need to mail this podcast to yourself for copyright reasons, Bob. That is a brilliant (laughs) idea. Okay, that with like chive sour cream filling? Mm Mm-hmm. Infused with a chive sour cream foam. Yeah. Oh, well, no, you can't put foam in a donut. Can't you? No, foam's not stable enough. Well, okay, I guess it depends on what kind of foam. There is literally a vegan donut shop 20 blocks from here that infuses things with an Earl Grey foam. Okay. I do like Earl Grey, and the idea of an Earl Grey foam is the most I've ever wanted to, you know, taste a foam. I mean, are marshmallows a foam? They might be. You know what? We should probably talk about a comic book. Megan Bob, what did you think of this comic book? Okay. I have read very few comics, as well you know. I thought this comic was really interesting and good. Yeah. I mean, my scope for comparison is quite (laughs) poor compared to yours. I don't disagree with you. I think it was good. I honestly thought it would be more fun. It's one where I feel like the description of the book on paper is more fun than it is on paper once it's printed, you know? I got 
all the emotional stuff I wanted out of it, though. Really? Oh, my God. Like, baddies forced to be good and then, like, help the good person even though they have feelings about the fact that they're helping the good person? Ah, that's everything I want. What? That is Garden Plots in a nutshell. No, I know, and that is part of why I chose this comic book for you, but I feel like in a lot of ways this comic book is the least example of that that it can be, given the premise. Like, they probably have feelings about what they're doing, but we don't really see very much of it. I feel like we're left to infer most of it, just because there is so much plot packed into it that almost all of the dialogue is expositional, and there's a lot of it. Yeah, there is. Coming from a fanfic background, I am used to watching a television show that has very little going for it, except for the unspoken parts and making a meal out of the unspoken parts and then reading reams of fanfic about the things they didn't say. Well, speaking of fanfic, this comic is essentially a piece of Tintin fanfiction. It kind of is, and it's a weird choice to me because. If you're going to write fanfic, in my opinion, the crucial question is, but what if they fucked? Right. This is not answering that question, nor do I think Tintin is the property with which to approach that question. Okay, well, there is at least one panel where it looks like it might be about to answer that question. I have feelings about that panel as well and i i have two competing theories about it okay well we we could get into that a little bit later but i honestly wonder if there was maybe a translation problem and the writer thought he was being asked to write a tintin comic instead of a titan comic that's a very fun story. You know what? I've had canon accepted. I think that's what happened. That makes way more sense than anything else. It kind of does. And I think probably the real answer is whatever comic he was assigned to write. I say he. I'm sorry. It's actually a husband and wife team that write under the name RJM Lafissier, which is a combination of Randy Lafissier and Jean-Marc Lafissier. But... If you do research on Tintin, which I did after reading this comic book, you find a lot of quotes by Jean-Marc Le Fissier, because he actually wrote a book about Tintin. Oh, wow. He is a huge Tintin head. He wrote The Pocket Guide (laughs) to Tintin. He is French, and I think that comes up obliquely in the book as well. But yeah, he, he is a huge fan of Tintin, and... In a lot of ways, the book reads like a Tintin book. Okay, did you read Tintin books for this? Because you said that you might, and I'm very curious what you learned if you did. I read a Tintin book. Okay, well, it's more than me. And by read, I definitely read all of the first 15 pages and (laughs) then kind of skimmed it. I read Destination Moon, which is, I think, the main book that this story was inspired by. and. I don't know, man. It's mm-hmm. it's one of those where I think it's good, but it also is not for me necessarily. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up reading a lot of Tintin. What was your initial exposure to Tintin like? I think my initial exposure to Tintin was comedy references to it in the 
huge amount of British panel show comedy that I watched mm. in the late teens that okay. was comedy that had been filmed in the 90s and early aughts. Huh. So when you were a kid, you didn't read any Tintin? No. I will say that whenever Neil, who is Irish, came over for the first time, one of the things that he brought as like a gift for me, not in like a, I know you'll love this, but in like a, here, this is a thing that's from the land of my people. And, you know, like if you brought somebody a cold brew coffee. Sure. It was some Asterix books. And Ah. so I'm much more familiar with Asterix. And to me, that is of a piece. I believe it's um, it's French, whereas Tintin is Belgian. Yeah. Although, was Tintin written by Belgians or by the French? It was written by a Belgian. Okay. Yeah. I looked at Tintin as a kid, but when I was a kid and I would tell an adult that I liked comics, there was a certain type of adult who would be like, oh, then you should read Tintin. Oh. And it was the same type of adult That if you mentioned to them that you were into Transformers, they'd be like, oh, well, you know what's much better? This unpainted wooden train. Did they have an NPR tote bag? Oh, almost certainly. In which they would keep (laughs) both the unpainted wooden train from Sweden, probably, and the Tintin graphic novel. Usually the Pharaoh's cigars, I feel like. Mm. But it, it was something that, like, I would encounter it from time to time and I would be like, oh, I like comics. And I would look at it and I would be like, I don't know, man. See, I feel like this gets into that thing that Scott McCloud talks about, which is like the very little bit I know about comics, just like that it's a medium, not a genre. And so if you say you like it, it would be like saying I like painting. And then somebody said like, oh man, you should check out the impressionists. And you're going, this isn't really my thing. Like, really into the pre-Raphaelites? Not this? So... Yeah, I think that is exactly what it is like. But with, I don't know, an added level of, in America at least, pretension that... Oh, of course. Oh, this is from longer ago, and it's European. Therefore, it's the classy version of what you like. 1,000%. And I think I kind of resented that as a kid. I don't yeah. think Tintin is bad. It is from a while ago and from a culture that I didn't grow up in. And also, it mirrors this comic and the things that I didn't enjoy as much about this comic in terms of just format. Very exposition heavy. The vast majority of the dialogue is expositional just because it is so plot heavy, mm. which is part of why you end up with pages that are like, 14 to 20 panel grids um, yeah, with very dense dialogue within them, which when I was reading Tintin in preparation for this was something that I encountered a lot. And then reading this, I was like, oh, yeah, you'll get a bunch of those. And then that'll be followed by a splash page. And this comic kind of follows a similar format. I think with Tintin, part of the reason why it ended up being that way is because it was initially published episodically weekly in a belgian magazine in short sections and you find i think a similar thing with a lot of adventure comic strips that are published in newspapers where you'll have to get a lot of information out in a limited amount of space 
So you'll see a lot of expositional dialogue. And I think that is what you encounter both in Tintin and in this comic book. This comic takes place in a really weird place in DC continuity. Okay. It came out right after the Crisis on Infinite Earths. I can tell you're at least a little bit familiar with that as a concept. I, okay, because of Smash Fiction, I don't know if I talked about this last time, the fucking Crisis on Infinite Earths, every goddamn time we had to do a match with any DC characters, we had to make specificities about, okay, well, what are we ignoring? What are we considering canon? And the fucking Crisis on Infinite Earths would always fuck everything up. And I was like, what does any of this mean? And it would just be like me holding a pile of fucking like spaghetti in my hands going, how am I supposed to create meaning out of this bullshit? So I have a real bone to pick with the Crisis on Infinite Earths. As do I. Honestly, I think it was a pretty good series. I don't like the premise that it was based on, which was, you know, let's get rid of all the really silly shit in the DCU, which I love the silly shit. That's my favorite shit. Silly shit's good. Preserve it. Yeah. And I understand things had been very convoluted in terms of continuity over the, I guess, 45 years or so of DC comics that it led up to it. (laughs) Sorry, I just had a horrible thought. I'm like, what if they did that with like the Bible? And they were like, just kept adding shit on. And then periodically they were like, fuck it. This continuity is too goddamn messy. We're going to do a, a crisis on infinite, I don't know, Nazareth. And like, Bob, I got bad news. They kind of did. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, they did. But they haven't been, like, putting out new issues, you know? Ah, the Church of Latter-day Saints might disagree with you there. They don't keep putting out new ones all the time. They haven't put out anything since, like, the 1850s. Fair enough. No, I want, come on, bring, I need some of that weird 70s shit. I need some of that. Okay, now you've got me imagining the Steve Gerber Bible, and (laughs) I think my brain might explode. But this book takes place, it's written after the Crisis on infinite earth Mm -hmm. theoretically it takes place before the crisis on infinite earth because it has to because the main thing that the crisis on infinite earth did was get rid of the idea of there being parallel dimensions which half of this book takes place in but it very clearly doesn't take place before the crisis on infinite earth because it isn't until after that that you introduce the idea of the global guardians having the dome and being an international organization (laughs) and the brotherhood of evil this is i guess supposed to take place after they died the first time but before their encounter with the new teen titans back in new teen titans 14 it just it's very convoluted and it doesn't quite fit in either one that makes me just love the french though for going god who fucking cares about your shit i just want to write this I'm like, I'm not saying that about the French writ large, although I, I like to think that about the French, that the French are willing to go like, nah, I, your visions kind of sucks. I don't like it. I would, I prefer this. No, essentially this entire comic book is uh, smoking a cigarette and saying, eh, 
about all of continuity. Which I value so much. I'm like, good for you for like doing that and just saying, no, I don't fucking care about your dumb story. I want to write this Tintin book. So I don't know. You deal with it. This sounds like a you problem. And man, it dives so deep into Tintin lore. You're going to have to fill me in because like I received not but the surfacest of Tintin off of this, which I'm sure there is deep Tintin lore and I perceived none. It was none that I recognized immediately. The extent of my familiarity with it at first was just like, oh, Tintin had a white dog and now he's riding a big white battle dog like he's post-apocalyptic He-Man. Yeah. Good for him. And that sea captain. Yeah, he's got the sea captain friend who, Captain Haddock, that is a great fucking name for a character. And if you're going to give a sea captain one defining characteristic, the fact that he likes to get drunk is a pretty damn good one. I appreciated that. But there is that page, basically, of Captain Haddock explaining why the Earth is fucked. And it is some, like, butterfly theory Tintin shit that touches on several Tintin books. Oh. In that, like, one page of things where that it references, it touches on things that happened in Destination Moon, Explorers on the Moon, The Calculus Affair, Tintin in Tibet, Flight 714 to Sydney, and Tintin and the Picaros. Hmm. Or Picaros, I don't know. And then you also have, like, stand-ins for, like, his main villain, which is a guy named uh, Rastapopoulos. Wow. That's that cowboy-looking dude. Okay. Who is apparently a film director named Roberto Rastapopoulos, who is an Italian-American film director. That's a Greek last name, though. With a Greek last name who in many ways is kind of portrayed as an anti-Semitic stereotype. Mm. And there has been a ton of backpedaling by the creator to say like, no, 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 he's definitely not Jewish. Mm. But basically, the main ways that the Tintiniverse differs from our universe and the DC universe are they went to the moon in the 50s, the early 50s, instead of the late 60s. Okay, and Belgium is the one who got there first, right? Yes. Or a slightly fictionalized version of Belgium, possibly. The other major way that the Tintiniverse differs from ours, I mean, some of the countries have different names, but it's pretty obvious which countries they're stand-ins for, usually. Okay. But World War II didn't happen in the Tintiniverse. And that is for a very specific reason. The early issues of Tintin, or the early adventures of Tintin, he, like, went to the Soviet Union because, as it first appeared, it was a comic strip that Perger, the author, or that's the name he wrote under, was commissioned to write for a fairly conservative paper that was, hey, write a bit where a Belgian reporter goes to the Soviet Union and makes fun of them. Oh, And so that was the initial one. And then that was followed up by Tintin in the Congo, which uh, Mm, went as well as you would imagine. There were some more Tintin adventures. And then Germany invaded Belgium. Ah. So there was a period where Tintin was being published in Nazi-occupied Belgium. And Mm. so at that point, 
the character and the book got distinctly apolitical for a bit. Yeah. He stopped being a reporter and started being a more generic adventurer or explorer and just didn't touch on any of that. Then after the war, things kind of resumed and the Cold War picked up. But Tintin exists in a world where there was a Cold War, but never a World War II. And mm. so the idea behind the universe that we see in this is that Due to butterfly effect stuff, the fact that there wasn't any kind of attention release, I guess, oh, wow. for World War II, which is a hell of a weird way to phrase that, sorry, and the fact that neither of the superpowers made it to the moon first created an acceleration of the arms race and made the first World War that the world experienced, because I guess maybe they didn't have a World War I either. Yeah, I was wondering about that as well, but I don't know. World War One is often forgotten in a whole lot of ways, although you would think in Europe less so, but who knows? Yeah, but basically that is why the world is on the brink, the very brink of annihilation, which is such a high concept thing to try to get across in this book that has so much else happening in it. Yeah, I definitely had to reread parts and then I got mad at the book because <laughs> I was like you're hard to read and I resent that hub I'm Bob enough to admit this I am a recovering gifted kid and so when things are the slightest bit challenging I immediately want to give up because I was told that if you were quote-unquote smart things were easy for you and then whenever I was like well I must be bad at it I'll just give up ah did you tell yourself that it was because it was boring to you? No, I internalized that I was bad at it and therefore I shouldn't try. Oh, okay. I went to I went the other gifted kid route, but I do have some questions for you because there was one panel that made me want to, it felt like I was bonking my eyes off of a wall and I still don't understand what's happening in it. Okay, what you got? Well, okay, before we even get to that one, on page five, a guy is getting his insides blown out and I was like, excuse me? This is very graphic. I mean, it's cartoon graphic, but you wouldn't see this on a Saturday morning cartoon. What are you doing? And I was like, is this normal? Can you show that? I thought you couldn't do that. Or is that a thing you can do? You know, at this point, by 1987, I think the comics code had relaxed enough that maybe you could. It didn't read that way to me. I think you're absolutely right. That is what is happening. But there's so much else going on in the panel in terms of like energy blasts and stuff that it didn't read to me as guts coming out of the back of the space guys. I read it as like laser explosion. But you're right. That is, I think, Monsieur Mala, which God, I love that name. Um, great. Firing a machine gun at the UN guy, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it is making his guts explode. Yeah. I mean, it's not the most graphic thing. Like, I watched Game of Thrones, but I still was kind of like, oh, gasp. I thought this was going to be a lighthearted romp. And instead, this man has perished. This is terrible. Well, and it is better than the other guy that you see Monsieur Mala kill, where he stabs him through the guts with the gun and then fires out the yeah. other side. Yeah. At that point, though, I was sort of like, all right, I guess this is what we're doing now. And if you're going to do it, I would rather you did it in a insane kind of fun way. Mm -hmm. But the panel that made me so angry is the two bottom panels on page eight. What is happening? Where is it happening? Okay. So 
the gang has gotten to this other world. I'm just going to call him the gang. And mm-hmm. they've met Tin, which is his cool post-apocalypse name. And now they're trying to like get into this outpost. And what is going on? Is he blasting through a door? Is he blasting somebody off a parapet? What's going on? Okay. It is incredibly ambiguous in those two panels how Warp and Phobia are using their respective powers. And the way it is illustrated doesn't make a ton of sense given what their power set is. But what I think is happening is that in the first panel, Warp is teleporting that guy somewhere. Okay. Because that is his power. He can teleport himself or others kind of anywhere as long as he knows the coordinates or something. Knowing his proclivities, he's probably sending that guy to the bottom of the ocean or halfway through a wall or something. Oh, that's mean. But he's so fun, though. I kind of like Warp because he's like, I live in Saint-Tropez in a fancy house. And also, like, I'm into the good life. And the Miss Piggy part of me is like, all right, I'm interested. Yeah, he is a lot of fun. Honestly, all of them can be a lot of fun. And... Reading this made me realize that where a lot of that fun comes from for me is that they all have ridiculous phonetically spelled out accents and those are missing in this because the people who wrote it are French. (laughs) And so they're like, "Uh, we do not talk like this. (laughs) We talk how you say normal. (laughs) I mean, never having gotten to see what it's like with the French accents, I didn't feel what I was missing. And so... Mm. They were all American to me, as far as I was concerned. Everything was taking place in America, or if it's taking place in a different country and it's not America, everybody's British. Well, that's the thing. Phobia is British. The rest of the Brotherhood, as they are portrayed here, Warp, The Brain, and Monsieur Mala are all French and have ridiculous French accents. I missed those. Anyway, in the second panel, Phobia is using her power to, I guess, make everyone afraid, but it's not really shown in that. You see a blanket, a power is being used, and then afterwards, everyone tells her, great job. (laughs) Again, because of how much is happening, how quickly in this alternate dimension, I feel like there's a lot of transitions like that that are just kind of skipped over. I think my favorite one is when we are introduced to Tintin's army. Tintin says, I call it the Second Chance Army. And let's say Monsieur Mala says, Second Chance? But that must mean... And Tin says, That's right, because it's the end of the world. It's like, I don't think they necessarily would have gotten that that fast. No. That's not an A, therefore B kind of thing. Like, second chance to me doesn't mean the end of the world. Second chance means second chance. And I don't know that I would have put that together unless somebody announced it. But he's, like, treating it as, like, well, obviously. And I'm going, "Uh, what? Right. But I, I think there's just not space for anything else. So it just skips over to, okay, here's this. You all get it right next. What guy from a comic book does Tin look like? Oh, jeez. I mean... All of them? None of them? Yeah, kind of both. That is actually one of the things that uh, Scott McCloud talked about in Understanding Comics. When he cites Tintin as an example, that's when he talks about the masking idea, that the more cartoon-like yes. and less 
features are on a main character's face, the easier it is for you to project yourself onto him. And yeah, that's kind of what Tintin is. He's a nothing. Well, what does he look like now? Because post-apocalyptic Tin looks like a comic book guy, but I couldn't tell you which one. He just looks like all of them to me, but I have read very few. Yeah, he now is just like generic comic book guy with pointy hair and a shitty little ponytail. And a very square jaw that only gets increasingly squarer. Yeah, he's like just a beefy Mad Max He-Man type guy. Dear Titan of the Defense fans, I want you to imagine He-Man with a weird little Tintin point, the Cupie point on the top, shitty ponytail in the back, still ginger, very cute, (laughs) with a pearl necklace. Not that kind, though. (laughs) No, okay, not that kind. but. It looks like a pearl necklace, or it's like a necklace of rocks, but they look like pearls, and why is he wearing it? But I was also like, you know, so the apocalypse knows you're a stylish gal. Yeah, I wonder if maybe it was supposed to be a puka shell necklace, so we know he's a a hip, cool, late 80s kind of guy. Oh, God. There's a lot about his aesthetic that doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. He's got metal knee pads, because what could be better for your knees than covering them in metal? (laughs) With spikes on them, too. Yeah. Just because, you know, he's that edgy. We'll talk more maybe about his outfit later on. We got a whole minutia section for stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is very distinct. I do want to say the one panel we get of grizzled old sea peepums whenever he's younger he's pretty hot like (laughs) he's pretty hot so i just want to put that out there yeah i'm a big captain haddock fan he just he looks like his first mistress is the sea but like he could give you a good time anyway well you know uh you can check out seacaptainsonly.com after we get off the air and (laughs) see if you can find your very own captain haddock (laughs) no i should not go looking at fucking archive of our own and see what pe- hold on hold on hub give me one fucking second ao3 is what we call it ao3 captain haddock all right please don't freak me okay there's a lot isn't there there's more than i would say i'm distinctly comfortable with that involves Haddock and Tintin, but I would hope aged up because that is certainly a thing that people often do is go like, this is the character whenever the character is like 25 or something. Well, that would be what this book did. Yeah, there are 319 works featuring Archibald Haddock. So Hmm. I am not the only one with a thirst for sea captains. (laughs) The other thing that I was trying to wrap my mind around and I couldn't quite get was... Well, I mean, there's a lot, but the thing that I'm going to (laughs) say now is how did Dr. Mist and Belphegor know that Tintin was in another dimension and needed rescuing to get on the space rocket? And why was that part of what they were trying to do? Yeah, I wondered about that, too. Like, I mean, good for them, but why did they care that that was happening in a different dimension that has no interaction with ours? Like, why is it important to them that a nice Belgian kid get on a rocket to elsewhere rather than a mean 
Italian-American film director. Like, it seems like they probably have better things to do. Honestly, it made sense to me in this weird way. And this is purely my pop culture knowledge. Like, knowledge is such a generous word. My pop culture impression of the French, which is to say a certain sense of like, well, we have our own priorities and we're damn sure not sharing them with you. And we do things for our own reasons. And if you don't get it, that's too fucking bad for you. And we're still not talking about them. But we did a thing that's important and it is important. And there, there you go. Okay. I mean, to be fair, Dr. Mist isn't specifically French. Oh, is he not? Oh, no. He is from the country of Africa. Oh, wow. The whole country. Wow. Yeah. See, Dr. Mist is part of the Global Guardians, mm-hmm. which is a weird UN of stereotypical superheroes from different countries around the world. Let, let me guess. The West is heavily represented and all of Africa has, what, two members? You got it in one, yes. Ah, uh, Dr. Mist, you. who is from Africa, mm-hmm. and Impala, who is from South Africa. Ah, the other part. Yeah. Dr. Mist is 11,000 years old, and he's basically Africa's Dr. Strange. I instantly like him more than I will ever like Stephen Strange. <laughs> Except for the fact that you do the Stephen Strange voice. That's the only <laughs> thing I like about Stephen Strange. That is absolutely fair. The Global Guardians were initially introduced in a comic book that didn't, strictly speaking, take place in the DC Universe. It was part of the Super Friends comic book. And then they got moved into the DC Universe proper at some point. But they are made up of Ice Maiden from Norway. Okay. Green Flame from Brazil. Okay. Jack O'Lantern from Ireland. Mm, don't love it. Lady Godiva from England. What's her power? Being hot? Ah, uh, I think she has hair stuff. That is nothing. Tasmanian Devil from Australia. <laughs> what? There's a fucking Tasmania. I know. One of my favorites, Little Mermaid from Denmark. Oh my god. Her power is turning into foam and perishing because of a man. Yeah, more or less. The aforementioned Impala from South Africa. Uh, Fleur de Lis from France, who is mentioned in this book. And that is actually the first mention of her is in DC Comics. Is she kind of a Joan of Arc type? I don't really know. I think maybe I maybe this isn't her first appearance. I I think this book did come out after Infinity Inc number 34. There was a brief push to make the Global Guardians kind of a big deal thing, and this issue or the bookends of this issue are kind of part of that, but it was never really a concerted effort and it didn't really work, I don't think. After this, the Justice League America becomes Justice League International. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the UN revokes all the funding to the Global Guardians and they go out of business. And Aww. they do some interesting things with the characters once they get scattered from there. Ice Maiden and Green Flame become Ice and Fire and join the Justice League. They are definitely the most prominently featured members of the Global Guardians in the DC Universe. 
a couple of them end up going rogue for a little while. It all gets a little bit convoluted because there's another team introduced soon after this that's the New Guardians, who have nothing to do with them. And the only thing I really know about the New Guardians is that they had a villain named Snowflame who got his powers from doing cocaine. <laughs> I mean, that's how Aaron Sorkin gets his powers, so I don't know why that's so unbelievable. That's how he writes a whole goddamn season of a show in one weekend. Okay, oh. I will almost never say this, but I'm glad you brought up Aaron Sorkin because oh, yes. it reminds me of another problem that I have with this book. Okay. Uh, and not necessarily with this book specifically, but with one of the characters in it. And it's a character that I want to like. The Brain. I like The Brain. He's dumb. Yeah, that's the problem, though. Because <laughs> he's sure not supposed to be. But he's, he's supposed to be the antithesis of dumb. No. He specifically is described as a tactical genius. And no. that is what leads us to the problem that I like to think of as Studio 60 on Sunset Strip Syndrome. <laughs> In that show, Aaron Sorkin created characters who he describes textually as comedy geniuses. Oh. And then he writes their comedy and <gasps> hate to say it, but it's not genius. But I like a tactical genius who's really not a tactical genius. Obviously, that's like my type in terms of characters <laughs> that I love is the character that thinks they're hot shit and they're nothing. And I am fine with that, too. But it's not that he thinks he's hot shit and he's not really. It's he thinks he's hot shit. The book thinks he's hot shit. But you run into the problem where if he's a tactical genius, he can't be more of a tactical genius than the writer who is writing his tactics for him. Yeah, it's true. But he's like a stupid fucking Dalek. Like, he's just, <laughs> he's a brain in a dolly. Like, he can't do anything. I don't know. I think he's just, he's moral support, except he's bad at it. Except for he's in charge and everybody does what he says and it's his plans. I agree with what you're saying. And if you like him being that character, imagine him, that character, with a robotic French accent that is spelled out phonetically. And that's why I love the brain. Okay. All right. That would make it better. You're right. Robot French accent is super fun. <laughs> Le beep boop. I will destroy you. Le beep. Le boop. Oh, oh, oh. See, I had other things I had to ask you about. Why does Warp wear a sort of... Aggressively uncircumcised turtleneck? Yes. Because George Perez could design costumes for people that looked cool when he drew them, and then when other people oh. drew them, they look really silly. In terms of costume design, I think the bigger question is... Why is Phobia wearing just a giant arrow pointing at her crotch on the front of her costume? I liked it, but I mean, that's who I am. Like, I'm a big <laughs> fan of a character that comes out with a strong, like, here you go. I thought you were saying, that's who I am. I'm just a big arrow pointing at characters' crotches. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I am Phobia's costume, Bob. How dare you cast aspersions? Speaking of Phobia, though, okay, she rides into battle on a fucking nuclear-radiated elephant that somehow 
has body armor on it, including like a morning star for a tail situation. Yeah, it's like an ankylosaur elephant. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you, I wrote this down because this is that important. If you were going to add tactical body armor into the biology of an animal, which would you choose? Now, keep in mind, for the purposes of this question, there are no ill effects to the animal. And scientifically, we know that the animal would be super into it. Manatee. Oh, shit. Yup. Like, they could, like, bomb boats and shit. They're like, fuck you, pleasure boaters. Yeah, propellers fuck me up? Nah, nah, nah. My propellers fuck you up. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, my God. I was going to put them on a hummingbird because hummingbirds are already, like, ready to start shit. And, like, you put armor on a hummingbird, we're like, we live indoors now. We don't go out anymore. Humanity is now a full-time indoor species. Everybody who does DoorDash has to wear full, like, (laughs) protective armor to go outside because the hummingbirds are like, no, man, the flowers are ours. Fuck you. Yeah, everyone would have to constantly dress like they were going to go pick up golf balls on a driving range in one of those suits. (laughs) Only it still wouldn't do any good because... I feel like a hummingbird could probably vibrate through that armor like the flash oh, yeah. and just start drinking the sweet nectar from your eyeballs. <laughs> this is why I love hummingbirds. They're so full of tiny rage. They're amazing. They're like, what if you shrunk a cat? What if you shrunk a cat and gave it cocaine? <laughs> Man, they're a gift to the world. A real gift. They really but are. I am so here for your... What do they call those? Like U-boat manatees or whatever. Just here to end all pleasure boating of any kind. That's delightful. But they'd be so chill about it, too. Oh, yeah. They would give you, like, a warning shot. Uh Uh-huh. And probably a thumbs up. And, like, they would tow you to shore after they sank you. Like, they're good bros. Yeah. Big fan of the sea cow. Aw. And then, like, a baby one with baby armor. I think we've done something good for the world here. I like to think so. Oh, you know what? What the fuck? Page 16. The chin. He has a Bruce Campbell chin by the end of this fucking comic. It just increases in size every time we see it. What the hell? Yeah, I'm sure by the time he gets to that other planet that he is taking the escape pod from Earth to, he's just going to be like Jay Leno. Yeah. Or the Mac Tonight guy. Oh, the moon face dude. Aww. That guy still gives me nightmares. Really? Okay, so I've never heard him. I only saw a picture. I'm, I'm such a fucking stereotype for myself. I thought he was, like, not sexy, but not not sexy. Something about him. Like, I don't know. He just says, like, you know, I could take you out on the town. I know some cool dive bars kind of guy. Yeah, I guess. I have not heard anything he said. So I, what is his voice like? I don't think the voice would be a deal breaker for you. He had kind of a stereotypical crooner voice. Okay. I think it was kind of based on Bobby Darren in terms of his his voice. Because he was singing a song parody of uh, Mac the Knife. Oh, I love Mac the Knife. 
I will say a song about a serial killer is a weird way to uh, sell hamburgers, but... I had weird feelings about Three Penny Opera that I'm not proud of, so... (laughs) Okay. Do you have any, like, Mackie Mercer stuff up on AO3? (laughs) You know, I don't, but only because there aren't enough hours in the day. Oh, my fellow Brecht heads, start hitting up <laughs> Megan Bob. I saw that musical. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, it's more of an opera. But I saw it in British Columbia at like a big old opera house and was like, oh, this problematic fucking asshole. I'm entranced. Yeah. Look, I want to make it very clear. That's not the only type I love. It's just that I have a soft spot for people who are terrible, who I kind of want to murder, but also think are like, I want to pat them on the head. Megan Bob, don't pat serial killers on the head. <laughs> Why won't you let me live my best life, Hub? Why are you stopping me? It's not an order, it's advice. Okay. The character that Belphegor and Dr. Mist are meeting with at the opening of it, Andre Chavard. Okay. Is a DC deep cut. That is one of the boy commandos that Jack Kirby wrote about in the 40s. Whoa. Kirby and Simon created this whole subgenre that was wildly popular of uh, young boys fighting in wars. <laughs> That's a weird kink sounding thing. Yeah, but it was the Boy Commandos and then also the Newsboy Legion kind of fit that bill, too. Oh, my God. That's so weird and adorable. What I think is also kind of weird is clearly the story. They wanted it to take place in France, which is where the Dome is located, which is the Global Guardian's headquarters. And I think it really was just a matter of what's the most prominent French character in the DCU? I guess this one kid who had a machine gun in the 40s. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it's him. They threw him in there. And then towards the end of the book, I had to look up because you have the brain name dropping. What was it? Fantoma and Fleur de Lis. Yes. And Fleur de Lis had made her first appearance a few months ago in an issue of Infinity Inc. And then I don't think Fantoma ever ends up showing up. I I think that is just like a placeholder character that maybe... Oh, no. They were like, oh, I'll I'll write something with uh, him or her later. I mean, Phantom of the Opera, like, it could be a lady Phantom of the Opera. Oh, sure. Gaston Leroux. Phantoma. Phantom of the Opera. He's just an incel with a cape. Yeah, that's, that's close enough to a superpower. Make no mistake, I still think he's very fuckable. But nonetheless, <laughs> I recognize how problematic that is. He's got a horse. What do you want from me? He does? Yeah, he has a horse. He's a white horse, too. It's all fancy. How's he get it inside the opera? Unclear. Does the horse go down into the catacombs with him? Uh, yeah, I think there's, like, a secret entrance. I don't know. Like... He's got a secret underground horse. Yeah, but also, he designed, like, mazes and labyrinths for this guy in Persia. And then he came to Paris and sort of set up shop in the opera. 
And the reason he came from Persia was because the guy was going to kill him. Because he's like, oh, you know, you built me the best palace ever. I have to murder you now because you know everything about it. We should have seen that one coming. Yeah, well, I think he did. I think he took the money and ran. So he's kind of like made the lair underneath the Opera Populaire his kind of private bunch of mazes and all this other stuff. So there's a lot of confusing shit down there. So I would not be surprised if he has a secret like horse enclosure and a way to get it in and out. I bet the horse hates that shit. Do you think the horse is allergic to drama? I think the horse is allergic to Eric's bullshit. You're afraid of horses. You don't. That doesn't mean I think they should be stuck in a fucking catacomb. <laughs> I don't like horses, but that's because I'm afraid of them. You know who I'm not afraid of? This fucking shitty Daedalus fuck who's apparently <laughs> messing with everybody in the opera. No thanks. Look, horses are assholes, but you're right. They probably don't deserve that. But I bet Eric cares for his horse and I bet he braids his mane and like is really tender with the horse. This is sorry. This is my fanfic I'm reading to you now. <laughs> what did you think of the art in this issue? Um, I'll be honest. I've already forgotten the other comic we read. Like my brain is a fucking sieve right now because it's the start of the semester. So everything is melted. As far as I can tell. I think I like this one more than the last one in terms of art, but who knows if that's accurate. What did I say last time? I'll have to go re-listen to remember. Yeah, I don't remember either. Okay. I don't think you were crazy about the Steve Ditko art in the backup story. Oh, yeah. Well, look, there was a lot of hot guy in it. That's not hot yeah. guy. Uh, Hawk. Of the night? Yeah. Fucking Nighthawk. Well, look, the hippies were great. That panel was terrific. Okay, now I'm starting to remember it. I think this is probably better to me. I really like this artist. I feel like he is a better fit for this story in theory than he was in practice. Like, I can see why they would pitch this story to him and think he'll be perfect for this with the story as it's described. I think it is less of a great fit in actuality. Really? Because it feels like a story about a group of fuck-ups. And, like, it feels like they're illustrated like a group of fuck-ups. Well, they are. And I think the art is a big part of why they are. But I don't think that's what the story intends. Joel Orlando has done a ton of comic books. And the stuff he's best known for is his work on war or horror or humor comics. That is what I feel like if you were given a description of what this book was going to be about you're like oh it's going to be a comedy story that has a setting of a post-apocalyptic war joe Mm. orlando should be perfect for that but there aren't really any jokes in this comic and i feel like it's kind of a waste of his talents in a certain way what the fuck is a joke comic because you just said that and i was like all my brain did was go banana peels and i went brain that's nothing Shut up. We're going to ask Cub. You're not that far off, honestly. Oh. All right, brain. Joe Orlando illustrated a comic book called The Inferior Five, which was about a real group of fuck-up superheroes. Aww. And one of them, I think, probably did fire arrows that had banana peels on them. Aww. The leader was a guy named Merryman. He wore a full jester's uniform and was modeled physically after Woody Allen before everybody knew about Woody (laughs) Allen. Oh. Yeah. But 
Joe Orlando was the choice to illustrate that because he had previously done a lot of work for Mad Magazine. And he continued to work for Mad Magazine. The writer of that series was a guy called E. Nelson Bridwell, which is, first of all, I love that fucking name so much. It's a very good name. He was kind of DC Comics continuity maven for a long time. What a cool thing to be. Yeah, he was an editor. He'd been an assistant editor for a long time under a very abusive editor named Mort Mm -hmm. Weisinger, uh, who treated him like shit. But during that time, he also wrote a ton of comics, and he ended up being an editor for the Superman books, and really just always kept an eye on DC's very complicated continuity. But he had worked extensively with Joe Orlando, and Joe Orlando was a vice president of DC Comics for a while, too. He was also the associate publisher of Mad Magazine, and worked for DC as an editor as well as an illustrator. Sorry, getting a little bit off topic, but he, he I just think he's an odd fit for this. Like I said, I feel like if you were describing the story, you'd be like, oh, it's a combination of war and comedy, clearly. But there isn't actually any real intentional humor in the book, I don't feel like. It's just outlandish. True. Although, okay, I'm looking at the section whenever Phobia is getting into Warp's mind. And mm-hmm. Warp just goes, ah, and then he's like pissed off at her. And then he's just, that's him sitting on the, the examination table on the edge of it and sort of like sulking because he didn't like what happened. And I thought that was funny, but maybe I wasn't supposed to find it funny. I don't know. The book is illustrated as though that were funny. And I think there is a fair amount of Joe Orlando having his own fun with it. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that. I don't know. Like I said, I don't dislike it. I wish he was a little bit more consistent in the way he drew Monsieur Mala, because he really doesn't look like a gorilla in most of this. But I do love me some Joe Orlando. And do you know who else loved Joe Orlando? Who? Pretty much everybody. Aww. I've got this huge compendium about DC Comics and the Bronze Age, and there's a quote in it from Paul Levitz that uh, I'm going to read to you. Yay. But it's about Joe Orlando. Joe Orlando roared through life. He roared with laughter at his own jokes, at ours and the foolishness of humanity. He roared in anger at imperfection and failure, whether his own, that of others, or that of a ridiculous system. And he roared with passion for life itself, for those he loved, and for a perfect line sketched on paper by pencil, brush, or keystroke. He roared at us, with us, and we admired the lion of our pride. That's really beautiful. I want somebody to say that about me someday. What a beautiful legacy to leave behind. I mean, not that, but you know, something that beautiful, like to leave behind such a a passionate, powerful legacy. That's amazing. I hope someday someone describes me as the armored manatee of our pride. (laughs) (laughs) What's the collective noun for manatees? Probably a pod. How about just a chill hang? Yeah, chill hang of manatees. I think that would probably be it. The armored manatee of our chill hang. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Lower back tattoo, armored manatee. Ooh, I like it. Gothic scrawl. (laughs) Yeah, like it says, I'm cool, but it also says, don't fuck with me. Not bad. I do have a question for you about comics writ large because you mailed me this comic in actual mail this comic is actual real human paper it's not made out of humans i want to be clear oh that's true 
there probably did print some comics on human skin in the 90s when they were doing a ton of gimmick covers, but this mm. isn't one of those. This is only 87. So it's hard to get back issues in some ways. Like, you can get back issues of some things. You can get back issues of not everything. How the fuck are comics preserved? Because they were printed on cheap, shitty paper. They're mm -hmm. ephemera. For they mm -hmm. might as well be a fucking brochure for a dermatologist for all the longevity that is intended for them. There are people who study comics for a living and have like catalogs of them that they use for their own academic and scholarly work. But unlike a lot of other mediums, so for those of you who maybe aren't in the weird halls of academia, whenever an author dies, there's a whole thing about like getting their papers and that is an intentional effort that is made to preserve everything about them and their legacy and to add to the body of scholarly knowledge and all this other shit. And so like people nowadays will libraries will put in bids or something to preserve the hard drives of authors, like old hard drives and stuff like that. And to have all of their stuff, but like nobody's doing that for comics. As far as I know, how the fuck do you preserve that shit? It's a big question. <laughs> And you're actually wrong. People are doing that for comic books. Yay. Various universities do have the papers of different comics creators. Fuck as yeah. As part of their collections. Chris Claremont's I know are at Columbia. And E. Nelson Bridwell, who we were talking about earlier, shortly before the publication of this comic book, had his papers collected by the University of Tulsa. And various universities do have comics collections. Uh, the largest, I think, is Michigan State University. They have over oh. 350,000 comics on file. But Bowling Green also has a very extensive archive. South Carolina University oddly does, too. The Library of Congress has the largest one. They have both physical copies of a ton of comic books. And then they also have a number of the very early ones on microfiche. Yeah. I have a soft spot for microfiche. I don't remember how to use it at all, but I remember having to learn that in Me middle school. Me too. And I don't remember how, but I remember thinking mostly microfiche, like little fiche. It's fun to say, and also, like, the eagle is in the belfry. It's like a thing that you're like, the microfiche is under the seat of the movie theater. Then mm -hmm. you're like, okay, this is secret stuff. Yeah. But by and large, the universities maintain comic books the same way private collectors do. They have them sealed in polypropylene bags, which help seal out any moisture, and acid-free backing boards to help maintain their shape so that they won't deteriorate over time. And there's been a concerted effort to protect and maintain them by some of these universities as early as, I think, Bowling Green started their pop culture department in 67, something like that. Fuck, yes! Around 6970 is when Michigan State University started their collection. I think in both of those, and there, there are other universities that have them, a lot of the really early ones were started by comic collectors who were professors there of other subjects who just mm -hmm. encouraged the university to do that, and because they had some clout, were able to get them to accept these collections from either themselves or other private donors who thought that the library should have them. Is there a big rush to digitize? I don't know, because these are not like acid-free paper, I don't 
think, for quite a few of them. No, not up until the late 80s were they. Until then, it was just very cheap newsprint, some cheaper than others. There has been a lot of digitizing of them. And as I said, there's been a concerted effort by actual historians and academics to preserve them in some ways, and that's definitely grown over time, but starting in the late 60s, really. But even before that, you had collectors. Like, you've had collectors as long as there have been comic books being printed. Mm -hmm. But because they are made to be disposable in a certain way, certainly a lot of them have been lost over time, uh, especially in the very early days of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But not as many as you might suspect. Really? There's three main reasons for that. And I should probably put the caveat to everything that I'm saying right now is a combination of some research that I've done at various points and a lot of speculation on my part. And then also I have completely forgotten which is which. So <laughs> I'm not citing any sources here. Let's just say. Don't worry. This is not a thesis defense. You're, you're okay. Okay, good. But I think it comes down to three main reasons as to why there are so many Golden Age comics specifically. That's the era from, I'd say, 35 to about 55 that do still exist. And those three reasons are thrift, greed, Mm -hmm. and the law of large numbers. Okay. So as for the thrift, the very first comic books, I think they started being printed around 1930. I might have that date off. But they were just collections of recycled material from the comic strip pages that were just bundled together Mm. and sold. So right from the inception, you have the idea that this is recycled material. They want to recycle it again. And so the major publishers, uh, National, which became DC, they printed their first comic book in 1935. It was a comic called New Fun. (laughs) And that was a reference to the fact that It was actually all new material, but even in the name, when you're pointing out that it's new, it recognizes that most material that is being printed is not new material, and Uh. there is an eye towards reusing it again in the future, which is something that they needed to do, because these fuckers were big, man. Golden Age comics were 68 pages each. Jeez. As opposed to the 20 pages of this one. So you need to be able to maintain your stock of content. And you need to be able to reuse it, and you want to hang on to it for later. And so, yeah, that's why National kept an archive of everything that they printed, starting with their first comic in 1935. And most other major publishers did that, too. A lot of publishers have gone out of business in the meantime, like a Fox Feature Syndicate and stuff like that. But that's where both Law of Large Numbers and Greed come into it. Because comic books were incredibly popular in the Golden Age. Like, a popular comic right now, like, not a super hit comic, but a good seller, something that somebody would be really happy with the numbers that it's doing, would I think sell around 50,000 copies. That's around what The Amazing Spider-Man is currently selling a month. That's a pretty substantial hit. That seems pretty big to me. Yeah, it is pretty big. In the Golden Age, in in the 40s, 95% 95% of children were reading comic books. What 95% of children between the ages of 8 and 11 were reading comic books. Slightly higher percentage for girls than boys, actually. 90% of children between the ages of 7 and 17 were reading comic books. I mean, wow, I guess it helps that there was fuck-all children's literature, really. 
Yeah. But Superman and Captain Marvel and Batman were regularly doing numbers well in excess of a million copies each. That's fucking insane. Yeah. Uh, Captain Marvel was for a, a period of time regularly doing print runs of one and a half million every month. So comic books in general were very popular. And even the comics that weren't as popular would still have pretty big print runs because this is where greed comes into it. Magazines would a lot of times sell their ad rates based on their print run, not on copies sold. So they had an incentive to print more comics than they were necessarily selling. So there's a lot of copies out there of these things. Definitely some have been lost in time, especially of the less popular ones. You've had historians work to restore ones that they had an interest in. I recently read a collection of Fletcher Hanks comics, which was restored by, I think it was Dennis Kitchen, helped put that together. I know the Spirit comics, which were very popular, but were even harder to maintain than regular comic books because they weren't printed as comics. They were done as Sunday newspaper supplements. And so they would deteriorate even faster, but there was a, an effort to restore those that was done by, I think, Cat Ironwood and Dennis Kitchen helped work on that with Will Eisner, who actually kept a lot of his own material, although a ton of his original artwork ended up being totally disintegrated because he <sighs> was using a different kind of paper. Oh, that, no. Yeah, he, he found a type of blueprint paper that he really liked to use uh, oh. when he was in the army and realized that that was just completely falling apart. He was one of the few people who was trying to keep some of his artwork. And yeah. there was really, like, no effort to maintain original artwork. Oh, wow. As recently as, I think, the 60s, The Flash ran a promotion where they would pick their favorite letter that they got every month, and if they chose yours, they would just send you a piece of the original artwork from it. Jesus Christ! Yeah, so there are some some lucky kids out there that got some beautiful Carmen Infantino artwork that way. But even given that so much of it deteriorated, you had collectors from as soon as comics had started being printed. The first comic book that had a letters column was 1940. Uh, it was a comic book called Target Number no. 5. It was a detective Yay, comic. Because I did want to ask you about this. I'm very curious about the origination of the letters page because that is unique to the medium, I think, or at least to superhero comics as a genre, the idea of the, the letters column. Because, like, you don't get that in opera and you don't get that <laughs> in television and you don't get that in podcasts where people are, like, regularly interacting <laughs> in that way. I mean, certainly some podcasts, but many, by and large, I would say not necessarily a normal part of it. Well, that was actually an outgrowth of the original uh, science fiction zines. Uh, they, those would have letters columns, and that was, I think, where the idea came from for comic books having them. But even in the very first one, even in 1940, the first letters column featured somebody having a question about collecting. And I think that was also why some of the fan culture started collecting and trading comics was from the letters column. That was, I think, part of why they would print the addresses so that people could write to each other and start swapping them. Oh, that's so beautiful. 
Yeah, that was something that was an outgrowth of the early science fiction scenes, many of which the people who worked on those ended up getting into the comic publishing industry later on. Uh, most famously, I think uh, I mentioned Mort Weisinger before and uh, Julius Schwartz, who was the editor at DC for a very long time. Both of them were in different ways, apparently monsters, but mm. um, that's, you know, the world for you. Yeah. But yeah, when they would have the letters column, it became a thing where they would print the addresses and fans would get in touch with each other that way and would sometimes just bypass the publication entirely. There have been various collections of Golden Age comics that have turned up. Like, some of the collections have been famous. I think the most famous one is the Mile High Collection, or sometimes called the Edward Church Collection. But mm. there was a guy named Edward Church who just collected every comic book as it came out and kept it in amazing shape. He was wow. an artist himself. He was a commercial artist and would use some of them for reference. But that was a collection that ended up falling into the hands of a comic shop owner in, I think it was Boulder, Colorado. And it was like 20,000 comics all at once wow. that were from the golden age that the estate just wanted them out of their house because <sighs> they needed to get rid of this junk that their dad had. Like, that was just a legendary find that really helped, in a lot of ways, define comic collecting. Because from that, he expanded his business and started taking out ads in comic books, selling individual issues. Uh, there was a, I think, nine-month period where there was a two-page spread in every Marvel comic listing comics that you could buy mail wow. order from Mile High Comics after that collection came to light in the late 70s so that's so cool i'm so glad because there's so many art forms that it's it's a damn shame that they're not preserved like i'm deep in the fan fiction community and obviously fan fiction is i guess to some extent a medium rather than a genre as well for as much as you can say that and it has a very murky sort of underground history because you know a lot of it is about illicit relationships and all this other stuff. And so <laughs> a lot of it is kind of lost, but there's a big effort. Like one of the major things that AO3 does, uh, Archive of Our Own does, is work to hunt down and digitize and preserve various works so that way they're not lost. Because like fan fiction has been around really since Sherlock Holmes, if not earlier. I mean, you can certainly call like, some of Greek mythology, you could certainly call it yeah. uh, fan fiction. But it's been around for a really long time, and a lot of it could be lost unless there's a real effort to go out and find it. I've talked about video games with Dan, our Skeletor from Garden Plus with Skeletor, about the loss, like data loss and stuff like that with video games, and that there's art forms out there that if you do not take care to preserve them, they will be lost forever. And like, I definitely am glad to hear that comics has a long history of preserving and maintaining collections. So that way um, there is a sense of history of the art form and a sense of history of not just the stories, but like, I don't know, the artists and also the kinds of like weird little stories that might be missed if people didn't know that there was this one run for six months 
you know, by this one person that was doing something really innovative that somebody saw at one time whenever they were in a drugstore and picked it up and it influenced them later on. And like, unless somebody preserves that, that's just gone. And you just, you hear about it through the grapevine. Yeah. I think one of the big things that happened with comic books was that, I mean, first of all, I think in a way the disposability of the medium itself is part of what helped maintain it. I kind of know what you mean. It's affordable in some way that a lot of other art kind of maybe isn't. Well, there's that, but there's also the fact that the publishers knew that they would be getting a new crop of kids that would be reading this in another three years Mm. so they could represent them the same material, which is part of why they hung on to it. One of the other things that you had is the people that were the fans of the media that became really involved in the fandom ended up getting very involved in the business of the medium, and they were able to work from the inside to help preserve it. That's so great. It is in a certain way. I know what you mean. I think it can lead to a kind of arrested development for the medium Mm -hmm. in a certain ways, because it becomes, no, the things that were popular when I was a kid that I liked, that's what they should be. Mm. And I think you do get a little bit of that, but what you also get when you get guys like... Roy Thomas, who had been huge, uh, he and Jerry Bales were some of the very early members of comic book fandom. But when you get him rising to be, say, editor-in-chief of Marvel in the 70s, you do get this push to maintain the history of the genre, which I think is really good, or can be. I agree. It's so important. I think if you don't, you risk erasing things. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be damaging for so many reasons. Yes. Like, not just for minoritized groups, but, like, I think that you can lose stories that were pushing boundaries long, long before we thought that there were boundaries to be pushed there. And that's so important that you maintain that stuff, because, like, I think it's easy for that to fall through the cracks. And I'm so glad to hear that there's big efforts to do that and that the medium has been on the watch for that. Yeah, and with the advent of people being able to digitize the media, there has been a big push towards that. There are tons of public domain comics that are available in archives online. I really like to read some of those from the Golden Age ones. Hell yeah. It's so weird to look at the early, early stuff. One of the things that I I know I've talked about on the show before, but it is a constant source of fascination to me, is the evolving role of sound effects. Mm. especially in the early days of superhero comics they didn't always used to be onomatopoeic they were sometimes expositional so there was a character called mano metal i think it was and he had a sound effect that was turns to metal (laughs) and turns to metal again sometimes wow and so yeah thanks to the digital archives i get to read stuff like that which is fun Oh, and the other thing that's really important is that unless you have good records and good digitization of historical artifacts like this, you get historical revision. And historical revision helps no one except the predominant paradigm. And so fuck that. Make sure that you digitize and preserve as much as you possibly can. That is so important. I think if you do have just the publishers that are doing it themselves, there is going to be... An excising of some of the <laughs> shit that they've done. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. WWE style where they're creating their own myths and history. And there already is a lot of that happening. But yes. uh, 
you know, I don't think you should let Marvel Comics forget that they published characters like Whitewash Jones. That uh, no. was a horrible racial caricature that Stanley himself wrote. Yep. I think you need to bear that shit in mind when you look at the history of the comics and of the publisher. Yeah, I mean, and I also, uh, as far as like ephemera and comics, I went on this. This will not surprise you. This is like so on brand for me. I went on a deep dive of Tijuana Bibles for a while. And those are like such ephemera and meant to just be thrown away the moment you look at them. And they're so fascinating. And they are such a weird insight into, I guess, the weird boundaries that people were willing to push. And then also this kind of weird reaction to the stringencies of the companies that various people were working for. Like a lot of the theories is that they were disaffected, like Disney employees, some of them. And maybe even like Warner Brothers and things like that who were just like, fuck this. I'm going to draw this terrible thing that would get me fired and I don't fucking care. Here's this weird porn. And I love the kind of insouciance and spitting in the face of like these big companies by doing this thing. But yeah, there's a lot of like weird shit out there and like good for all of that. It's from a collection of those that I learned that jazz used to be slang for fuck. So wait, how do you use that? Like we're gonna jazz or like do you have to say we're gonna play jazz i think it would be i'm gonna jazz that flapper okay because i was gonna say like you can't say jazz you man like that's that doesn't work that's too mean (laughs) man that's jazzed up Mm. see man it's about the flappers you're not having sex with (laughs) hey in fanfic It is so about the notes you're not playing. You don't even know how much it's about the buttholes you don't touch. Hey, that's jazz. Yeah, 100%. On that note, are you ready to move into the minutia? I think we probably should. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Now, back under the couch with you, and keep it tidy for Bob. Thanks, Rick! So, Bob, what category do you feel like starting with? Let's go to the Bozone! All right, which example of a character calling another character a Bozo, either literally or metaphorically, do you think is worthy of highlighting? I am pretty sure we have the exact same one because there were not a lot of options unless you found a secret hidden door in the issue that led you to a secret insult that somebody gave to somebody i don't believe i did but i'm curious (laughs) third rate buffoon yep oh that's a good one i mean i've heard this before like third rate clown It's an insult because it says you're a clown and not even one of the better known ones. Like, Mm -hmm. what a fucking good insult that is. To call anybody a third-rate whatever is chef kiss. Yeah, it's like you came in second place in the loser competition. Oh, It's like an insult and a math problem. I am not given to, like, insult very often, but when I am, it's because my ire has well and truly been raised. And generally, it's about people who are fewer monsters in the world. And, like, I want something that is a stab directly to the heart. Because I'm like, no, you're a monster and you deserve to die. And Mm -hmm. so I like to have something truly crushing to deliver. 
and third-rate buffoon. I like all of my colleagues, but if I ever have a colleague I don't like, I want that in my back pocket. It's a good one, because it is devastating and also a kind of classy thing to say. Like, not necessarily classy, but something an old person might say. No, I know 1,000% what you mean, because buffoon is not a curse. Like, calling somebody a third-rate fuck is very different than calling somebody a third-rate buffoon, although one would shrivel at both. And I would imagine there's a fair amount of overlap in that Venn diagram. Uh, yeah. Because, Bob, buffoons can't fuck good. Now I'm thinking about Mr. Bean and I've got questions. (laughs) Okay, no, we're not getting into questions about how Mr. Bean fucks. I'm drawing the line there and only there. Okay, thanks. I will wander directly into that pit of alligators if you do not stop me. I am putting the moth guard up on this flame of fuckery. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Who did you have as the president of the drama club in this issue? What character was acting, or rather overacting, in the most dramatic fashion? Okay, does it have to be a member of the Titans, quote-unquote? It does not. Okay, because Minos, Jesus Christ. Like, just going, no, if I can't have what I want, everybody has to die. This is how I want things. And you're like, it's been the apocalypse for a while now. Like, have Mm -hmm. you not managed to moderate your expectations, use some coping skills, maybe some breathing techniques? But no, Minos is like zero to not even 60, zero to 1,000 in two seconds. (laughs) And I mean, it makes sense because canonically he is affiliated with the film industry. In his very first appearance, he was a director who was sitting next to the Tintiniverse's version of Mary Pickford. Tell me about Mary Pickford because I've forgotten. Silent film actress, I think one of the first to be known as America's Sweetheart. Uh, I think she and Douglas Fairbanks were a thing. Okay, because I am familiar with Theda Barra. Mm. And Clara Bow, and like, I'm familiar with Theta Barra because I took a class on vampires, mm. and she was the first vamp in films. Yeah, is that where the phrase vamp even comes from, maybe? Because, I like, I believe so. She was both a vamp and maybe a vampire in how she was portrayed. I think that's exactly where it comes from. I would need to go back to my notes from that class, which I have not looked at in over 10 years. But thank you, Dr. Harriet Lincoln. You were a delight. I loved everything you taught me. Thank you very much. Five stars. Man, six stars. Look, I wouldn't have gotten into this fucking field unless, I mean, which mixed results, but unless Dr. Lincoln had taken me aside and gone, do you think you might want to do this? And I've been like, man, I planned to just like die under a bridge previously. <laughs> like that's what most millennials career plans had been. Well, I, I don't know. From what I understand of academia, that might be a lateral move. on your Oh, part. <laughs> oh boy. I th- if you saw the committees, I've got some real estate under a bridge that I've been thinking about. Yeah. I think Milos, who is, as we mentioned, a stand in for Rastapopoulos. Oh, Milos. Which- okay. Is it Minos? It is Minos. I said it wrong. Oh, is it? I mean, they're both Greek, which still fucking does not line up with this Italian cover story we're hearing. 
Yeah, I think the story was that Hergé initially had a different name he was going to give the character, and one of his friends said, what about Rastopopoulos? And he's like, that is funny! Oh, ho, ho. Or whatever the Belgian equivalent of oh, ho, ho, is. <laughs> Waffle! I do not know! Oh my god! Because that's the one thing we know about Belgium. I completely yep. understand. It's, it is waffles, and it is a fondness for potatoes and mayonnaise. I get this. Waffles, tin tin smurfs racism that's my knowledge of Belgium. hey hey good beer as well don't yeah. don't leave that out not my oh, really favorite. i like a creek i like a fucking pêche, a frambois yeah. okay i do i do like a frambois man you mix that with a stout oof of course you love a frambois yeah i have taste buds and a heart yeah for my president of the drama club I actually had a little bit of difficulty deciding really? between two characters. One was uh, Tin, oh. because he is the only member of his cohort who decided to wear post-apocalyptic Mad Max-style garb. Captain Haddock is still dressed like Captain Haddock. Professor Calculus is still dressed like Professor Calculus. But Tin is just like, nah, I'm going to do my own thing. <laughs> Well, he's probably in his early 20s. He's, you know, going through some stuff. Sure. No, and, and I can appreciate that. But it is still a fairly dramatic move to decide that you want to wear spiked knee pads. All of a sudden, apropos of nothing. What did you wear in your early 20s? <sighs> probably spiked knee pads. <laughs> I did have a pair of steel-toed wingtips that had hate written <gasps> on one and love written on the other. Oh, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. My other choice was Dr. Mist. Okay. He decided to use his powers as an 11,000-year-old Dr. Strange to just provide a visual aid apropos of almost nothing for a little story that he told towards the end. When he's talking to Belphegor and they're leaving the cemetery where they have just visited the grave of Simon Le Sir. Yeah, which I was like, I don't know that Knight Templar, I'm sorry. Well, good news, Bob. This issue is his only mention in DC history. Ooh. I think RJM Lafissier was uh, just, you know, throwing pasta at the wall and seeing if any of it stuck. <laughs> but regardless, after he is talking to her and explaining why they sent the Brotherhood, he is saying, besides, who would you have sent? The Huntsman? Jack O'Lantern? Fleur de Lis? Who else brought the Brotherhood had the power and ruthlessness to help Tin? No, they were ideal for the job. And in the background, you see he is using his power to create an image of the Huntsman and Fleur de Lis and Jack O'Lantern in the background behind them. Oh, I thought that was like some weird ass statue that was in there. And I was like, all right, I don't know. I haven't been to Père Lachaise in like, <laughs> no, I've never been to Père Lachaise. So, yeah, I was like, maybe there's just some weird statuary. Who the fuck knows? Yeah, that's what Jim Morrison's grave looks like, man. Is that where he's buried? Yes, him, Oscar Wilde, a whole bunch. I definitely want to go to Oscar Wilde's grave. I mean, look, I'm a drama kid. I gotta go. Sure. Yeah, no, I want to go to Jim Morrison's grave and just, you know, make sure. <laughs> Bob, let's have a battle of the band name. Oh shit, I got you. 
what band names did you find in this comic book? I think this week we are going up against Victoria's Anguish, the vaguely bondage-themed all-female horror punk band. Mm, uh, yum, so yum. who do you feel like putting up against Victoria's Anguish? Okay, there were some strong contenders, but I am only going to give you one because it's a strong take and it's in my heart. Okay, I'm looking forward to hearing it. I have two choices, so I'll give you my first one, then you give me yours, and then I'll give you my second one. Okay. My first one is Half Wolf, with an exclamation point. Ooh, all right, I did consider this. I just feel like they would fit into that spate of wolf name bands that was huge about five or six years ago. I kind of know what you mean. Wolf Mother, that shit. Uh-huh, Red Fang. Okay. All I think about with wolves is Rammstein, if I'm saying that correctly, which I don't speak German. I never took German, so. Does that mean wolf? I don't know, but they had a song that was like Real Little Red Riding Hood and it seemed sexy. I don't know. I do like the song uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. I think that was, by, what, was, that, was that the Coasters? Oh, well, we've already gotten outside of my sphere of knowledge. Okay. But yeah, I feel like half wolf. So it would have to be half, like, I feel like most of the bands that had wolf in their name were like, kind of indie hard rock so it would need to be something different for the other half so maybe a mix of that and ragtime oh that's charming so that that's what i think half wolf is what is your band name dying would be stupid Ooh, it is doo-wop covers of the smiths that is pretty intriguing because it's all that Morrissey depressing, a mm, mopey, but like doo-wop girl shit. And it's much happier. And it's like, no, dying would be stupid. So oh. whenever they sing like girlfriend in a coma, it's all like, yeah, no, it's not bad. Don't worry about it, babe. Uh, did I tell you about the game me and my friends used to play? I think it's come up on the show before, but uh, Public Morrissey, where you, no. where you do public enemy lyrics in the style of Morrissey. I don't know anything about Public Enemy, which is very embarrassing. Okay. But tell me about it. Bass, how low can you go? Death row where a brother knows. Back again is the incredible, untenable rhyme animal. D, Public Enemy number one. Five oh said freeze and I got numb. Because I haven't got a gun. <laughs> anymore (laughs) oh that's beautiful it's a fun thing to do when you've had too much to drink oh man that sounds like a good time five stars (laughs) my other choice for a band name was the comfortable laddies Ooh, where the fuck was that in the comic it is something haddock said there is a comma in it but i i think we can change the grammar yeah agree but uh but he says, get comfortable, laddies, because I've got a story. So yeah, the comfortable laddies. That's kind of cute. That's a real, like, the bicycles or whatever. Is that a band name? I fucking think it is. Probably. <laughs> Very twee and adorable. Yeah. I don't know. I, I want to say they sound like the Soup Dragons, just because that's the only Scottish band I can think of right now. I love the Soup Dragons! I got into the Soup Dragons, like, <laughs> in a weird time in my life, and I was like, the Inspiral Carpets and the Soup Dragons? Fuck yes, please, I will download that LimeWire. 
it took me an embarrassingly long time to find out that the song I'm Free was a cover of a Rolling Stones song and not a Soup Dragons original. I listened to that at the gym today thinking <laughs> that was a fucking Soup Dragons song. And so live on air, you are hearing me realize who the fuck sang that first. Yeah, it was the Rolling Stones, I'm pretty sure. Well, the fucking Soup Dragons did it better, I'm sure. They made it their own. In, in a way, it's <laughs> You're not, this is not a case of, like, whenever the animals did a better song than Eric Clapton, huh? <laughs> this isn't the defining version, is it? It might be. I don't know. The Soup Dragons definitely had the defining version of uh, Divine Thing. Aww, I'm going to listen to my Soup Dragon CD tomorrow. Well, Soup Dragons aside, for <laughs> now, let's go with yours. That's very kind of you. To, do you always defer to the guest? No, because the guest is usually Corey. Corey, you're great. I heard you used to have a septum piercing. That was very brave of you. All right, I will take your kindly guest offering of this Smith's doo-wop version of Dying Would Be Stupid. And I will post that up on Twitter, and uh, you can all make your voices heard on this important issue. Well, Bob, as you no doubt know, every issue of a Teen Titans comic that has a supervillain team as protagonists has a Dr. Light, the worst of (laughs) supervillains, and also... A Ding Dong Daddy Dowd, the greatest of supervillains. 1,000%. In this issue, who did you have as your Dr. Light, and who did you have as your Ding Dong Daddy Dowd? For my Dr. Light, I had Brain. I like him! I like him a lot, but what the fuck did he add to the proceedings? Nothing other than being a weird Dalek. Like, I love him, and I want good things for him, and I hope he has a good life. I mean, I hope he doesn't do evil, but I hope he runs a dolphin sanctuary someday. He doesn't, but I think you will like what (laughs) does happen with the character. Oh, yes. He and Monsieur Mala end up canonically being a couple. So, he'll be okay. Yay! Yeah, for my Dr. Light, I had Phobia. She just didn't do all that much. I guess she helped Warp regain his knowledge somehow, because maybe he was afraid of not remembering where he came from. It didn't really make sense. No. I understand it is difficult to make people afraid of things when the world is literally ending around (laughs) them. Gotta be difficult to be like, oh no, a snake at that point. (laughs) But still, she didn't do very much. That's part of why I gave it to her. The main reason I gave it to her, though, is she is a British woman. Uh Uh-huh. Everyone else there is speaking French, and it is translated from the French, so they have an excuse for not having a ridiculous phonetically spelled out accent she has no such excuse and she does not take advantage of that okay which british accent were you hoping for were you hoping for like midlands you were hoping for yorkshire you were hoping for cockney bob you know i am always always hoping for a dick van dyke-esque cockney accent no 
Oh, it's a jolly holiday doing evil with you, the brain. <laughs> That's how I want phobia to sound. Doesn't make sense. She's the daughter of an ambassador. She should be upper crust, but I can't do posh. And I do love Dick Van Dyke. So I can't do a properly like uptight posh one, but if you get a certain level of uptight posh, it sounds insane. I wish I could do it for you. I'm sorry. That's okay. We can't all be as gifted at accents as Corey is. <laughs> I'm from France. Corey? How did you get here? I thought you were in another dimension. Oh my god, I am Corey! Conversely, who did you have as your ding-dong daddy Dowd? Oh, Mala. Absolutely Mala. He was amazing. He fucking conked tin in the back of the head and was like get on the fucking ark you tool and it was like you are a sweet baby and i love you and i want to kiss you right in your little gorilla forehead he is a evil talking gorilla with a french accent named monsieur mala of course he is my ding dong daddy dowd oh yeah how could you choose anyone other than monsieur mala He's the best, and yes, I did specifically call out the fact that he knocked out Tintin and shoved him on a spaceship for his own good, but even if he hadn't, he was still a talking gorilla with a French accent, or in this case, who is just speaking French. Yeah, I did have serious beef with his teeth, though, because I'm like, gorillas have flat teeth because they're fucking, like, I mean, they do have some, like, incisors and stuff, but they're leaf eaters like they, they can't chew leaves with nothing but pointy teeth i don't know i took an anthropology class and i have feelings about my apes i get it and yeah those panels in which he is bearing his sharp pointy fangs and also kind of doing a gene simmons tongue thing are just yeah. kind of disturbing on a couple of levels yeah also his teeth are spaced crazy i'm like you're not even gonna get anything with your teeth all crazy like that Gotta have them close together. No. Gotta be able to All he's gonna chew. do is cut up his gums. Yeah. yeah. Man, I went to the dentist recently. Yeah, protect your gums, man. You don't want spaces there. That's how they floss you. That's how they floss you? Yeah, it's terrible. Bob, were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Oh, I was, but you may disagree because you remember something of the 80s, whereas I remember glow sticks maybe yeah i think there were some of those there what do you have for a timestamp? okay saint tropez like being a place that was like kind of a place where a sexy you know villain would retire to saint tropez was still on the up and up into the 80s and i did a little research and then kind of Ooh. after that was not a thing as much it kind of actually acquired a reputation of being kind of seedy and not a place you'd want to go. It's like kind of like a, oh, it's a it's kind of topless beach place. It's a place where you go to like fuck around and get drunk oh. and, you know, trash the place. And then I found out there was an article in 2009 from Travel and Leisure that was sort of like hot again, Saint-Tropez. And so it was talking about like, the attempt to kind of rehabilitate the reputation of Saint-Tropez as a place that you should go on vacation and that isn't just like seedy topless beaches and kind of shitty nightclubs. So Saint-Tropez being classy and sexy was a thing in the late 80s, but kind of stopped being once we hit the 90s. Excellent work, Bob. Thank you. 
I, uh, sadly have let my once encyclopedic knowledge of French real estate really <laughs> slide as of late. All I was able to come up with was, uh, Tintin's shitty little ponytail. I feel like a uh, mm. ponytail on an action star was mm. a late 80s, early 90s thing. And uh, you didn't really get it much after that. I think now it's coming back potentially. It fucking better stay dead. I think if it is done now, it's more in the style of like a top knot. Okay. You, you know what I mean? That. Yes. But uh, yeah, shitty little Steven Seagal style ponytail that... Tintin had seems like he he's trying to be portrayed as an action star and that's yeah. kind of shorthand for actiony post-apocalypticness mm. and I don't think you would necessarily get that anymore but it was a bit of a stretch cuz almost all of the action took place in another dimension that was I, I don't know Mad Maxi by way of 1950s Belgium so kind of hard to get a read on for me the only other one that I had would be the very specific in comic book universe timestamp of they were trying to make the global guardians a thing which mm. really was just i think 1987 i kind of wondered about the emphasis of the cold war like obviously the cold war went on for a long time but mm -hmm. this kind of urgency about it i don't know if the cold war was especially urgent in 87 but i know that like we're about to go into the fall of the Berlin Wall in a couple of years. And so right. I don't know if it like hotted up towards the end and then it just kind of all like a flan in the cupboard, as Eddie Izzard would say, kind of collapsed in <laughs> itself. But look, they stopped teaching us history whenever we got to <laughs> probably the 50s because they like ran out of time. They had to cover everything about the French Revolution and then they like, oh, sure. then there was nothing. So I couldn't tell you jack shit about recent American history. That is a failing of the public education system. I'm sorry. There is a lot I don't remember from the 80s, but from what I remember about the Cold War, it was a thing until it wasn't. It seemed quite serious. Yeah, there was a very permeable feeling in the air that, you know there's a pretty good chance all of this is going to end in a nuclear holocaust, maybe mm. tomorrow, Okay, you know? All right. So that is good to know then that, like, it was actively simmering until it was not. Well, also, I was a literal child at the time, so my perception may have been skewed. And don't get me wrong, Rocky Balboa diffused a lot of the tension <laughs> when he went over there and fought Ivan Drago and, uh, won over the crowd of Russian onlookers. I mean, that really helped usher in the upcoming era of Glasnost, but uh, it wasn't a done deal yet, for sure. <laughs> well, Bob, we've touched on some of this stuff already, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you find most noteworthy in this issue? I'm a queer with a heart. I mean, it's Belfagor's fucking 80s ass outfit with the kind of like oversized collar and the suit jacket and the skinny tie and the sunglasses indoors at night and the power bob that's like messy and kind of punk rock or metal. Oh, my God. My heart was on fire, Hub. It is so good. That look is really good. I also 
do enjoy her other look, the stage hand who has been to a thrift store look. Yes! Where she's just wearing the all-black bodysuit with a uh, kimono over it. 1,000 Possibly a little bit culturally appropriate but we don't yeah. actually know Belphegor's ethnic origins. This so. is true. We know very little. And I don't think we ever learn all that much more. She's psychic, apparently, which, you know, good for her. Yeah. And she helps run the dome for the few months that the DC Universe was thinking about having the Global Guardians be a thing. I hope that Belphegor gets to, like, hang out with Grace Jones and shit. I bet she does. Probably. Oh, she has two very stunning outfits. And yeah, I just like her whole look. What'd you pick? Okay, so Belphegor and her outfits definitely made a strong impression on me. She somehow managed to be smoking a clove cigarette in every panel without ever smoking a clove cigarette in any panel. So that was one of them. We've talked a fair amount about Tin's post-apocalyptic look. Yeah. Um, that certainly was a thing. On page six, Monsieur Toulon's look, when he is trying to sneak oh up on... Oh my god, yes! The Brotherhood, he is wearing a pink shirt that is unbuttoned to low chest, I would say. Has a bunch of uh, gold chains with medallions. Popped collar on that fuchsia shirt. I am going to use a phrase that I used in my Doctor Doom Elaine fanfic. He looks like a rent boy Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. And I guess the indeterminate amount of comic book time that the Brotherhood is gone was not kind to Talon. <laughs> Did you see that he fucking comes in with an obligatory baguette? In his fucking Of course groceries? I did. How else would we know that he was French? Jesus. He is actually apparently named after Jean-Marc Le Fissier's hometown of Aww. Toulon, which, judging from the characterization of this guy, I would say he probably has mixed feelings about. <laughs> I hope my town gets murdered by a giant brain <laughs> and vacuum cleaner. And his talking gorilla friend. Yeah, talking gorilla husband. I don't think yet. I think okay. they were still feeling out their relationship at this point. How does the sex work? Sorry, that's the main question I have. I mean, they do say that the brain is the largest sex organ. <laughs> Just gotta lick that brain, I guess. <laughs> I guess so. I'll find out in fanfic and report back if there's anything to be known. I mean, apparently gorillas have very tiny penises. So. Yes, they do. Because gorillas do not operate the way that humans operate in that it's not as important for them to make sure that they are competing with other males in terms of like inseminating females so they can afford to have tiny dicks it's not as important good for them yeah and probably good for the brain i mean yeah i don't i don't know how those wrinkles work <laughs> in terms of other fashion i also liked minos's outfit That's um very good just big cowboy hat he's got a little is it a bolo tie or is it just a shoestring it's, tie it's like a string tie it's not a bolo tie bolo tie is like two strings just dangling down and they're usually woven leather at least all the ones hmm. i've ever seen this is like a string tie this is like what colonel sanders has okay yeah but uh, other than that he's got like a full cowboy look going but like you know wealthy oil magnate cowboy and he's got a riding crop. He's just, he's, he's committed the to the bit. Yeah. And 
I like that his version of committed to the bit does not involve like mad maxing it up. Like you see, there really is no call for Tin doing that. Oh my God. You make such a good point. Tin's just doing it for funsies. Mm-hmm. I also did appreciate Dr. Mist's incredibly half-assed attempt at an impenetrable disguise. His bucket hat? Yeah. He's wearing a bucket hat over his magic helmet. And we see later on that he just changes into a suit sometimes, so there's no reason why he had to be wearing his weird superhero getup under the trench coat and fedora, but whatever. I Have totally fun, thought about maybe it was like, is a bucket hat a timestamp? I don't know. See, I know there are many people who have worn bucket hats successfully, but in my mind, all I can think of is either my grandfather when he's in a rowboat or two thirds of Cypress Hill. These are very different pulls. You don't know my grandpa. Big send dog vibes <laughs> from that guy. Bob, what was your favorite panel? Oh, I've been waiting to talk about this because it's very important. Let me find it. It's not page 17? Against every odd in this fucking universe, it is not page 17. Although part of me is all in on page 17. But then Mm -hmm. another thing happened. On page 16, if you look at the panel of Tin Rampant on the Half Wolf (laughs) below that, is Mala on a unicorn. Wait. Whoa, where did he get that unicorn? He has a unicorn! Because he's that committed to beautiful ponies. Mm. Okay, a unicorn is not a pony. Well, no, ponies are evil. (laughs) Well, so are unicorns, just a different kind of evil. (laughs) They're fancy evil. Is this getting into your hierarchy of equine evils? I mean, a little bit. I've got spreadsheets. But mostly I just keep thinking about how I have heard my friend Jay refer to unicorns as slut-shaming murder horses. Mm. And I think that is applicable. I don't think that's wrong, but they're still fucking cool. I just want to know where he got it from. He apparently summoned it since the previous panel where there is no unicorn in sight as he is stabbing a guy through the midsection with his gun and then firing it. And the unicorn still loves him because it too is a murder horse. Hmm. Yeah, I guess a talking super intelligent French ape is the murder horse of the Simeon family. <laughs> I mean, look, there were a lot of panels to love, but I saw there was one with a unicorn in it, and, like, I'm a mark for a certain kind of horse, and that's it. That is fair. I think I'd like unicorns better if they had ridiculous French accents, but I see where you're coming from. I think we do need to talk about page 17. I think we have to talk about page 17. It is the reunion of Captain Haddock and Professor Calculus and an all-grown-up Tintin And it really looks like Tintin is going in for a big sloppy kiss. And the professor's a little bit embarrassed about being in company. But Captain Haddock is patting him on the shoulder and being like, no, buddy, it's cool. We know. Yeah, it looks very homoerotic. Like, it looks like, is Tom Ford the guy who did all that art? Like, not out of place in that universe. I mean, a little bit post-apocalyptic. but. 
not wildly so. It is weird how, like, embarrassed the professor looks. Like, he know, really does like, look like he's just oh. being like, not in front of everybody, no. And, uh, and yeah, and then the, the captain's like, blistering barnacles, go for it, laddie. <laughs> Get the tongue and you've missed out on all these years. Yar. <laughs> oh, it's very disturbing in a way, though, it's too. It's super disturbing. It's, there's so much about it. Because, like, He's known them since he was a kid, and, like, that's weird. Yeah. In this, like, really power-imbalanced relationship. I don't know, man. (sighs) Maybe I'm in the minority here, but I don't want Tintin to end up dating Professor Calculus. (laughs) Uh, I think you're safely in the majority. Okay. Other panels, I did enjoy seeing a suddenly much more cartoony and slouched over, and I think looking a lot like Minos, Toulon, carrying his baguette around. That was pretty great. It just cracked me up, the idea that, I mean, Joe Orlando has a background in caricature, so you can almost hear him going, I gotta make sure these guys know that this guy's French. Give him a baguette. I know. I thought about that, and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, he didn't give him a beret and a string of onions, so fine. Which I am also pissed about. <laughs> Seriously, for me, the Monsieur Mala character doesn't really take off until he gets a beret, which he does later on. I love a beret. I have a beret. I I love them. They're the best hat. Well, okay, no, a Panama hat on a woman is the fucking best hat, but a beret mm. is, is a good one. I yeah, know. man. I want to say young Maggie Smith, but I think she was still in her 40s. But damn, Maggie Smith in uh, Maggie Smith in Murder her 40s on the could Nile. fucking get Oof. it all day, every day. Oh, boy. Yeah. Her suit's in that. So good. Jesus Christ. My other favorite panel, I think, is on page 13 and is when everybody's getting ready for the big battle. Warp is wearing his aggressively uncircumcised turtleneck and pointing at how different... Saint-Tropez looks. But mostly, I just like how everyone is super intent. Monsieur Mala is having a little heart-to-heart with a surprised blue Sherlock Holmes. (laughs) And Captain Haddock is just going to town on his flask. I love that! Yeah, he's like, yeah, fuck it, we're going into battle. I'm gonna be fucking drunk. It's the end of the world. Good attitude. I have two character traits. I'm somewhat belligerent, and I drink all the time. You better believe I'm bringing both of those to play. I'm a big fan of Blue Sherlock Holmes's, like, hey, expression as well. <laughs> like, his sort of cheeky imp face, and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here? Why are you so excited? He's giving Monsieur Mala a, like, oh, no, you didn't. Yeah, big, oh, no, you didn't energy. Well, Bob, I have just one final question I gotta ask you. Okay. Wapoot! Yeah! What is Aqualad probably up to in the year of our Lord, 1987, and the month of our Lord, June? Okay. Aqualad was having a quiet afternoon listening to the radio and doing the dishes like you do when he heard the voice of a siren, a goddess. It was... Whitney Houston singing, I want to dance with somebody who loves me, in parentheses. Mm. He dropped his mug with World's Wettest Sun back in the water. And the song (laughs) 
touched something in his heart and he needed to dance. He needed to. So he called Beaky, who was well up on the local club scene, and asked, where can a young, handsome Tom Jones-looking guy go for a classy dancing and possibly love? And Beaky told him about the club MK, which had just opened back in March and was hopping. And apparently, like, Madonna liked it. It was this townhouse-turned-club, sort of a front-runner for the lounge-like clubs that we kind of have now. So he got Mm. past the bouncers and he hit the dance floor. But, like, he's used to dancing in the water. He's not used to dancing on land. So he was struggling to find his groove. And these two guys at the club took pity on him and were like, let us help this damp man out. So they took him aside and showed him how to move his hips side to side as he circled his arms from right, then out in front and drew them back to the left. And he asked what the dance was called. And the guys told him it was the cabbage patch. Oh, and he hugged them both and had them drinking off his tab the whole night because finally, finally a dance he could do on land. And those two guys were Gucci crew two who were the fucking sixth band to release a song about the Cabbage Patch <laughs> and the second band out of three to release a song about the Cabbage Patch in 1987 alone. And uh, My that's, God. that's what Aqualad was probably up to in June 1987. He did dance with somebody who loved him. And that was himself because he loved himself to treat himself to a night of dancing and clubbing and making new friends. So thank you, June 1987 Billboard number one, Whitney Houston. You made Aqualad's night. Oh, well, that's part of what Aqualad was up to in June of 1987. But it wasn't the only thing that he was doing. Oh, yes. See, after all that dancing, Aqualad decided he needed to cool down a little bit. So he headed north. He headed up to Canada. And uh, enjoyed a few nights out drinking with a good friend of his, Robert Ralph Carmichael. Robert Ralph Carmichael was an artist who Aqualad had known for a while, and he needed to get his mind off a big project that he had coming up. And so he and Aqualad went out drinking, and Aqualad's like, you know what you should draw a picture of? (laughs) You should draw a picture of. Because I just saw this movie, and oh my god, it was so, it's so funny. You... He, he's a Canadian. You'd love him. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, wow. This is national treasure for you guys. I don't know why he's not on, like, everything. Because, like, oh, man, I just saw him in Dragnet. And, uh, I mean, the movie was good. But then he did a rap song at the end. Oh, and, no. oh, boy, City of Crime. That is such a good song. I think it's my new favorite song. And he did his the Blues Brothers, and he's just so silly. That guy's a silly loon, and he's a national treasure. <laughs> and uh, Robert Ralph Carmichael was like, oh, okay. And they had a lot of Molsons that night, and uh, a lot of uh, Crown Royal. Mm. And uh, next morning, Robert Ralph Carmichael woke up and was like, oh, I don't really remember what we were talking about, but uh, the phrase Canadian national treasure and loon keep popping into my mind. I think I'm, I know what I'm going to draw for the back of the $1 coin that Canada is about to issue. Yay! And that is why on June 3rd, the loony, Canada's first $1 coin that had a cool picture of a loon on the back. Sadly, not the loon Aqualad had intended. Uh, didn't go with a picture of Dan Aykroyd. But I think a loon is still a pretty good call. 
It's a and uh, that's why we have the loony these days. And I don't know, it's a pretty fun coin. Yeah, it's super fun. I love it. I'm a fan. I like the toonies too, because <gasps> they're, they're like it's the two dollar coin that Canada has, and it's like a two toned coin. Ooh. Yeah, it's got a different colored middle. It, it's really cool. They got such sexy currency. Mm-hmm. And it's all different colors, and there's like little windows in it and stuff. Man, our money's looked the same forever. Like, I mean, we switched to like Glamour Shots version of the presidents, yeah. but it's still pretty much the same. Our money's bullshit. We should yeah, we should it. have more colors. Yeah, 100%. More animals on it? Put some lenticular animation on there. Ooh. Like, ma make it look like the people on the money are doing stuff. Yes. Make them do the cabbage patch. Yes. Make fucking Alexander Hamilton do the cabbage patch. Oh, he would hate doing the cabbage patch. He would. That's why I want to make him do it. Yes. Ah. Uh, well, Bob, thank you so much for joining me. I had a great time talking to you about, I don't know, everything. everything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just looking at the time, and it certainly did fly. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It is a joy to come on here and to just have ridiculous conversations and then force you to answer all of my questions about comics. Oh, I'm happy to do it. I, I love talking about this shit, and uh, I love talking with you. So I, I hope it's fun for people to listen to as well. That would be nice. Bob, before we go to, like, the weird outro plugs and things, mm -hmm. is there anything you would like to plug while you are here? I would like to plug Garden Plots with Skeletor, which Hub, Marissa, Bond, and myself write on. It's wonderful. If you haven't listened to it, you should, but I understand that there's a million things to listen to, so I get it. But I would say jump in at any episode that has a guest that you are curious about. Because we do have some very fancy guests. We have a Hal Lublin. Hal Lublin makes an excellent Fisto. It's great. But the other thing that I produce somewhat frequently, although in varying levels of frequency, is Hard Choices. And if you've ever wanted to delve into the fuckability of fictional characters, which is a thing I do whether I mean to or not. It comes out approximately shrug and our episode about Game of Thrones has dropped. And so that Ooh. will be in the hard choices feed available for your listening pleasure. But stay tuned, subscribe, because come November, you are going to have the chance to hear Hub on it. And you are going to be treated to some hot and spicy takes. I, it turns out, have opinions on the Justice League. Yes, and it is delicious. So if you want to make a, a sexy cocktail for yourself, put on some jazz and uh, put on that podcast, you're going to have yourself a pretty sexy evening. So I recommend that. <laughs> and I would like to also second Bob's recommendation of both that show and of Garden Plots. I think Bob was a little too lenient on you. You have time. Make the time. Listen, listen to these shows. Oh, shit. I also, I fuck. I do another podcast. Oh, man. Miles is going to murder me. Okay. I also do the next wrestling fan podcast. It's about wrestling, and it's me learning how to like wrestling. If you are like, I don't understand wrestling, don't worry. We start from not understanding anything about wrestling, including what the fuck a match is. So if you've ever gone, 
man, I wish I understood wrestling, but I also don't want to have to work that hard at learning it. Boy, do we have the answer for you. Yeah, you should listen to that show, too. I also love that show. And I was a guest on that one time. You could listen to that episode as a yeah. jumping on point so that Absolutely. I'll be audially holding your hand as you check out a new scary realm I of know, listening I to a podcast. Hub was very good. You should listen to that episode for sure. Listen to all of Megan Bob's podcasts Thank because uh, they are a genius and they're great, as you know now from having listened to them today. Aww. I'm going to put that in my promotion notebook. So that way they know and they give me like an extra 20 bucks. Is that how that works? Um, uh, Hub it's... is a genius and you should listen to all of his podcasts. Yeah, nice. give Hub no, 20 I'll bucks. I'll have to give myself 20 bucks. Oh, wait. Aww. I don't know how math works. I know. Me Finite neither. resources. This is why system. I, I teach English. I don't know anything about math. All right. If you'd like to get into touch with me and Corey, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com. Or you can uh, get in touch with us at our post office box. That's Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We're also up on the internet and shit in various places on the socials media. So you can look for us there. And hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look. And that's deep inside your heart. Bob's going to be there, and so am I. Bob, what are you doing in people's hearts this week? Well, I think I might make a quiche, you know, so that way your heart smells really nice, like it smells cozy. Because mm. let me tell you, I think I might put some roasted butternut squash in that quiche, and it's nice. going to make your heart smell like fall is coming. Yeah, that's an autumnal heart. Yeah. Not bad. I'm going to be... Probably still editing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Don't be. Too late. <laughs> if you would like to support the show financially, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There is the monthly podcast, What the Duck, a podcast most filed, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. I know we are overdue for an episode of that. Um, it has been difficult for... Lisa and I to be in a room that doesn't have Finley in it as he has been recovering from his surgery, but yeah. that is coming to an end soon. So there will be another new episode of that out soon. In the meantime, I have been trying to step up a little bit how many video reviews of classic comics I've been doing. So there's a bunch of those up there and there's a big back catalog of podcasts and videos and stuff for you to listen to and that is all available exclusively to our donors as a thank you for uh supporting us and helping keep the show going so thank you so much for that if you haven't thought it, about donating you should because the backlog of stuff is delicious it is like having more hub poured directly into your heart it's great oh shucks thanks bob and you can also listen to the episode that uh, Bob and I did about uh, <laughs> Scooby-Doo-Ed Pro Wrestlers, which is weirder than it sounds. And it sounds real weird anyway. Uh-huh. If you would like to support the show in a non-financial way, I don't know, just uh, start talking about us. Tell a friend. Tell an enemy. Tell a talking French gorilla. Go into a bathroom with a Sharpie. And say, Ooh. for a good time, listen to 
tighten up the defense and then write out the whole link. Or if you're crafty, you can draw the QR code. I don't know if we have one of those. You could probably get one. Yeah. I think that's a great plan. And also, Sharpies smell great. But don't do it in your own bathroom. <laughs> no, that's a bad You're not going to get the same amount of foot traffic there, for one thing. Go to a college campus. That's probably a good place. A local coffee shop. You know what? Not a local coffee shop, because you should no. go to a local coffee shop, but you don't want to tag their bathroom. Tag a Starbucket. Yeah. You can also just go to whatever podcatcher you're using to listen to this show right now and leave us a positive review there. Say, manatees definitely deserve armor. U-boat manatees, five stars. It's just that simple. And then finger gun sounds. Pew, 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 pew. Indeed. Finger gun laser sounds. Thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you for joining us, Bob. I had a great time talking to you. Make sure to listen to Garden Plots, The Next Wrestling Fan, and Hard Choices. And until next time, um, make sure you don't travel back to the 50s and conquer the moon for Belgium, or we're all fucked. That's not as pithy as I was hoping it would be. Okay. The planet threatens to explode any minute now! Oh boy, it sure does. <laughs> Bye! gonna be fucking longer than the last one i'm sorry hub that's okay i don't care you're gonna edit it you're gonna care yeah probably but that's future me's problem (laughs) fuck that guy no no he's so rich probably oh man future hub i love you so much thank you for editing this you're the best oh he doesn't need to hear that that guy's (laughs) ego's through the roof ever since he won the pulitzer prize (laughs) and all those tonys well, if you're slim, heavy, skinny, or fat, you're just the right size to do the cabbage patch. So, come along, your dance will make you dizzy, and right about now, it's time to get busy.